Hello, my name is Will Spencer, and you're listening to the Renaissance of Men podcast. This is episode number 43 with the author and philosopher C.B. Robertson. This is a time of transformation. As old ways fall, men are called to rise, to heal our lives, grow strong, and transcend our limitations. In tribes around the world, drawing on the best of masculinity from all of time, a new day is beginning. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance. If you are like most people I meet, you probably feel a little unrepresented by your political party. Maybe you consider yourself to be more left-wing or right-wing, but unless you're some kind of abstract Burkean, you probably have your own point of view that differs from either the mainstream Democratic or Republican platforms. Maybe you even have criticisms of your own party. Conservatives like Vox Day and liberals like Christopher Hitchens have both pointed out ways in which mainstream politicians seem to have betrayed the values of their own party. Either way, for most people, left and right seem inadequate. The terms don't describe them, but those are the only words that they're given to categorize their political views. I want to delve a little deeper into this. The terms left and right arose during the French Revolution. Loyalists were on one side of an aisle who supported the crown, while Democrats who supported revolution stood on the left. But that dynamic isn't descriptive of what we're fighting over in America now. Politics is about who controls whom. In challenging times, we're all looking for some common ground. We're looking for a path back to unity. If we can understand what the power dynamic is, who is fighting for control, then perhaps we can achieve that goal of unity. So what are the complaints that the left and the right have? Leftists tend to complain about global corporations, the military-industrial complex. Right-wingers complain about big government and globalists like the United Nations and the Ivy League. When we look at these side by side, a pattern emerges. We have a broad base that are stable populations, critical of larger, transient, global populations. Note that there are left-wing and right-wing people in both of these groups. It can sometimes be difficult to explain why a policy is either left-wing or right-wing. It's easy to go down rabbit holes that way. But if you think about political policies in terms of whether it benefits stable local populations or whether it benefits transient global populations, a lot of things make a lot more sense. Republicans criticize Democrat-run cities, which is a true observation, but Democrats aren't always enacting policies their Democratic constituents want. These Democrat-run cities aren't this way because of Democrats, but because Cities attract transient populations that stay a while, vote, then leave. Cities are more accurately described as centers for the transient global populations. 
We can think of probably a couple exceptions offhand. Salt Lake City and Las Vegas come to mind. But Las Vegas's transient population is so transient that they generally don't have time to stay and vote on issues as they do in other larger cities where people will work in small businesses for a brief period of maybe a few months to a few years. Salt Lake City has the perception of such a strong religious community that there is very little motivation for outside transient global populations to attempt to overthrow it by moving there. When we look at the political breakdown in America as between stable local populations against transient global populations, rather than as between left-wing and right-wing parties, a lot of unity becomes possible between friends and acquaintances who otherwise might see themselves on opposite sides of the political aisle. So perhaps if you want another view of politics, a fresher framework to talk through with your friends, try this out. Instead of focusing on whether a politician has a D or an R after their name, look at where they've lived and for how long and if they have children. Are they stable and local? Or are they a member of the transient global population. You might be surprised by how much unity there truly is beneath the confusion and division. I want you to do me a favor for a second, if you can. Put down the pen, turn off the screen, and stop what you're doing. Now, close your eyes. I want you to think about what it's like knowing that your life, right now, is the end product of thousands of years of recorded human history. Millennia ago, there were men and women walking around not too different from you and me. They didn't have the same technologies we do, obviously, but they lived, lost, laughed, explored, created, and died not too differently from us. They fell in love, marveled at the birth of children, looked up at the stars humbled by the beauty of nature, and wondered about the meaning of life. But like many of us today, the cares of everyday existence often got in the way of taking that wondering past the point of reverie and into deep contemplation. After all, there were mouths to feed, communities to serve, and a life to live. At the same time, though, there were those who had a longing that extended beyond mere curiosity and into a soul-deep desire to know, at least insofar as they could, within the scope of their limited human minds and bodies. These men, and they were mostly men, became philosophers. Endowed with timeless genius, they peered deep into the world, into others, and into themselves, searching for answers why. And many were successful in their search. We know because their names travel through history. Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, Seneca, Xenophon, and more. Now, all this may seem pretty obvious, but I had an experience not too long ago that suggests maybe some dimensions of it aren't as obvious as they seem. Most mornings when I wake up, I read the Bible. In the evenings, I read something else. Sometime last year, during my morning readings, I was working through the book of Proverbs, which was written by King Solomon. Then, in the evening, I would read Meditations by Marcus Aurelius. A few days into this process, something hit me. How remarkable is it that I, living thousands of years after both these men, can receive and learn from their combined wisdom. Standing between their two great minds, I felt a gulf of history open up between me and them, 
like a dark tunnel stretching deep into the past. Their voices echoed forward through it to me, and I felt myself as one piece of the current end product of history. It was very much a you-are-here moment. And in that moment, I resolved to read more philosophy. But then, life got in the way. Which brings me to my guest this week. His name is C.B. Robertson, and he's an author, husband, father, and student of history, religion, politics, and more. If I'm one type of man who allows the concerns of life to interrupt his philosophical pursuits, C.B. is the other type of man for whom philosophy is life, or at least a big part of it. Because if you don't immediately recognize his name, you might recognize his Instagram handle, Caffeine and Philosophy. I'd come across his writing from time to time on that platform, especially when it was shared by men I respect, like Jack Donovan and Tanner Guzzi. I always admired CB's clarity of thought and crisp style of expression, even if I confess I was a bit intimidated. But as you might have noticed, I've been ranting a bit about religion lately, and after one such rant, CB messaged me to discuss Christianity and his belief that it has a nihilistic, feminizing component, an argument he set forth in his book Holy Nihilism, which he sent to me. I started reading it between sets at the gym one afternoon, which I thought was a fitting environment, and I found that I agreed with him, or rather we'd observed the same phenomenon from different sides of the fence. In that, I saw my opening, because if I know my audience, you guys like lengthy, in-depth episodes to chew on, and I could tell that CB would fit the bill. In our conversation, we discussed why Homer matters and how the stories of Achilles, Odysseus, and Hector have meaning for us today. Plato's Republic and why it's easy to miss the subtle message that Plato is trying to communicate to his audience, the nature of the discussion between the transcendent hero and the family man, and maybe why the distinction isn't so clear, masculine speech and its direct and indirect forms, and finally, how shared suffering between men binds us together in our minds and hearts as well. CB graciously agreed to come on the podcast just a few short days after we started talking, which was inside my usual research window. I normally like to know a lot about my guests before I talk to them, but in this case, we decided just to wing it, and I have a feeling you're going to like the results. If you enjoy the Renaissance of Men podcast, thank you. Don't forget to give us a rating on Spotify, a rating and review on Apple Podcasts, and please share this podcast with your friends. With your help, the Renaissance can reach more men and women. Also, speaking of podcasts, if you're tired of Spotify big tech censorship, The Renaissance of Men podcast is now part of Podcasting 2.0. Visit podcasterindex.com or see the link in the description and connect with us on dozens of other platforms. I recommend the full-featured Fountain FM, where you can add Bitcoin to a Lightning wallet and stream sats while you listen. So far, listeners have contributed about $20, and while that might not sound like much, I put an enormous amount of work into these podcasts, so every little bit of appreciation counts. Thank you to all who've contributed. Finally, this episode is sponsored by Deepwell Designs, makers of fine silver and stone jewelry handcrafted in the Western United States. Keep listening for information or hit the link in the description for more. So it gives me great pleasure to introduce this week's guest on the Renaissance of Men podcast, the author and autodidactic philosopher, C.B. Robertson of Caffeine and Philosophy. C.B. Robertson, thanks so much for joining me on the podcast today. Well, thanks so much for having me. So a pleasure to be here. You know, I, uh, you're one of those content creators, um, writers, authors on Instagram who's, you know, I, I just keep bumping into 
Um, I keep bumping into your material over and over again. Every time I read it, I'm like, this is, this is on some level that, that I, I have so much admiration and respect for. And uh, so when you messaged me, I think it was last week or the week before, um, we just kicked off a conversation about Christianity and, and had the chance to, to interact. I was like, oh, you know, I got to take this opportunity to have this guy on the podcast because I just want to pick his brain and, and listen to him share about these topics that I myself am, learn- am learning about. Very cool. Well, the, the feeling is very mutual. We, I feel like we've been running in very um, uh, sort of similar circles, circumlocuting around each other for, for some time. I've been hanging out with a bunch of, 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 of all groups, uh, online Catholics in, in the Telegram world. And, uh, <laughs> and of course we're, we're both mutual acquaintances with, with Jack and his excellent body of work and, yeah. um, all things sort of online masculinity subject matter. And, um, I think it's natural that religion and philosophy sort of go hand in hand with that, um, realm of exploration. Can I ask you a bit what it's like to hang out with the Catholics online. Like, how's that, how's that going? I, I'm I myself uh, in Protestant. Um, I think I don't know too much about the nominations, but I'm super curious what it's like in that world. Um, the, sometimes it's rewarding. Uh, it was, it was, uh, it was, it was getting a little irritated. I haven't spent time there in a, in a few weeks, but um, it was getting annoying dealing with the, the, the infighting. Cause there's nothing, Pro, uh, Catholics love more than dunking on Protestants. Sure. And there's nothing Orthodox Christians love more than dunking on Catholics. And <laughs> it's very, uh, it was, uh, <laughs> it's funny. Um, it's, and of course you get outside of the, the, the Catholic world and everyone loves dunking on Christians in general. Yep. And then you go to church and Christians are dunking on Buddhists and, and atheists, which is not hard to do these days. And, yes. Uh, and it, it's it, it's all kinds of dunking everywhere, but there's the, Catholicism is interesting because there's such a deep body of work to explore there as mm-hmm. well, and um, especially if you find people like Bishop Robert Barron, who's a, an excellent person to follow, no matter what your beliefs are, just just in the way that he looks at things and and analyzes things. Mm-hmm. So that's of, a, of the Christian groups, Catholics are. are a particularly they have a particularly likable contingent <laughs> in them i'll say that yeah i mean as as i've gone exploring through the world of christianity which admittedly hasn't been all that long i've i've noticed some of the same dynamics that you describe of this group dunking on that group that you know and, and it's uh you know it's it's interesting like allegedly everyone's kind of on the same team but they can't like miss the opportunity to take digs at each other almost every yeah. almost every chance they get and i you know i will say that i've spent I guess the past 30 years of my life investigating religion and spirituality, you know, as much as I can, as broadly as I can. And so I am actually quite interested to get into these philosophical theological distinctions between Christian denominations. Um, but from the outside, it's just kind of looking around at this and being like, what are you guys doing? Oh, sure. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's very easy. And I think there are actually some, some Christian criticisms of theology along the lines of it's very easy to sort of, uh, miss the moon for the finger, as it were, yeah. and to to completely lose track of the of the personality and spirit you're trying to develop by going to church and in pursuit of all these like arcane bits of trivial knowledge about the you know the origins of the Nicene Creed or this or that heresy from the third century or or whatever, which is all fascinating and, and, and worth exploring. Um, it's just easy to lose track of why you're, mm-hmm. you're getting into that stuff. 
Yeah. How do you strip so. how do you strip apart the the practice, you know, the history from the actual theology? Like what is right. the actual what are the nuances of the actual theological picture that are being described outside of any actions of men? Like what are the actual mechanics mechanics of spirit that are going on, which is always what interests exactly. me, but that's a that's a bit harder subject to get into. Well, and maybe it's easier for me as a non-Christian to stay mm-hmm. a little detached from, <laughs> right, <laughs> from it. But it's it's no less enjoyable to learn about, and, and maybe that makes me a uh, strange. But uh, it's um yeah, it's it is easy to to um, mistake the the map for the terrain, as it were, with theology. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so it's like what are, what are we what are we actually doing here? What is it? What is it we're actually saying about ultimate reality and our and our place in it? You know, how do we how do we actually like strip off the jerseys, you know, of of my team versus versus your team and say like, well, what does this actually say about the universe and and our place? And and yeah. you know, for aside people that, from aside from the fact, of course, that Catholics aren't real Christians and Mormons are even worse and. <laughs> Orthobros are just LARPing and every other denomination has its, how, how quickly can we race to the bottom on this? (laughs) Exactly. Well, I mean, I I will say that there is a, there is a very fascinating, again, I don't know too much about orthodoxy, but it does seem to have a really strong appeal for men and masculinity these days. It seems to be this gravitational appeal almost. It's, it's, it's very interesting to see. I know of at least two or three guys I talk to per week, you know, who've become Orthodox in the past couple of years, trying to find mm-hmm. a Christianity, a version of Christianity that, that fits with them, that they feel like they can make a, make a home in. And uh, I, I personally, um, I found a great church to belong to, and I found a great pastor who, you know, gives me the spiritual nourishment I need. So for me, it's a, it's a bit more academic in that way, but um, it's, at the same time, it's hard, it's hard not to deny that, that that kind of trend is, is what's happening. Yeah. For sure. And orthodoxy is particularly interesting because um, my introduction to orthodoxy, to exploring orthodoxy, was um, there's a somewhat infamous character in the in the pagan world named Paul Wagner. A bit of <laughs> yes, a, I know, I know a, Paul. A, I don't know him personally, a, but I know of him. Yeah, a, a bit of a cult leader, and and I mean that in a not not quite as a compliment, but as a as a <laughs> neutral description. I, I think he would accept <laughs> yeah. the, the label, and. Um, specifically a wolf cult leader, but he, mm-hmm. uh, he has said in the past that his dad, um, is a Christian priest and he mm-hmm. quit the Anglican church to become an Orthodox priest because oh. he felt that the Orthodox priest church was the last bastion of real Christianity okay. and has variously said that there aren't really substantive value differences between he and his brother and their pagan cult and their dad and his orthodox beliefs. So I think th- that that strange connection there is part of the attraction that a lot of men feel towards orthodoxy. They see the 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 hermetic cloaks with the strange strange kind of rune-ish signs on these black cloaks. It looks very old world and it's the the um in many ways the aesthetic of orthodoxy that draws many men in as hmm. far as I can tell. And uh, I would, I agree with that assessment that it seems like uh, I can't speak to the theology of it. I know that a lot of the guys that I know, the the Catholics and the Orthodox guys, I know debate about, you know, the Orthodox is the oldest church and there's something going on with Ethiopia and that, yeah. and that whole thing. And I don't even, I don't even get into that, but to your point, it does seem like the, the real appeal is, is the aesthetic, is the, is the, the feeling of, um, 
the feeling of discipline, of rigor, of hierarchy, um, of structure. But I think also what Christian, what, what Catholicism and Orthodoxy have is a sense of the numinous that doesn't actually exist in Protestantism in quite the same, quite the same way. And I think for a lot of really mystically minded men or, or, or men who, who experience religion or experience spirituality in, in their hearts, which is a good thing, they're looking mm-hmm. for something that reaches them on that level and they don't really find it in Protestantism, which I can't really disagree with. You have to dig deeper for it. I'm not saying yeah. that's a value judgment, but, th- but they, 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 want us, they want to see something that calls to their souls and spirits. It's, it's, it's there in Protestantism, but it is more deeply buried. Yes. There isn't the, there isn't the, the body of work that there is with, with orthodoxy or, or with um, Catholicism, Catholicism in particular. I mean, even, even the architecture of Catholicism leans into that sense mm-hmm. of the transcendent and so forth. Yeah. I mean, I've been to the Sagrada Familia Church in Barcelona and to step inside I've been, I've been to Barcelona twice, and the first time I went in 2004, it was closed. And when I went back in 2015, it was open. And to step inside that church was just—it was—I I, don't—I I lack words. It's just an overwhelming power of genius and majesty and beauty, like crushing transcendent beauty. It was—it was really as as close to stepping into a vision of 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 heaven as I can imagine. That's not to say mm-hmm. there aren't others, but as I could imagine, and you know that a, that a faith right. would produce something of that scale, of that of that uh, drama and majesty is is um, it's humbling. It's humbling, and I think that's the appeal of some of these ancient faiths is that they offer that in a world that today, especially this dry box, gray, you know, black mirrored, um, drained yeah. of mysticism world lives in. We live in, and so much of of. American Christianity in particular seems to be dressed up in IKEA instruction booklet style too. <laughs> yes. you, you know what I mean? It's very um how can we dumb it down and you know make it kind and compassionate and um compatible with not just worldly sensibilities but the busy schedule of our attendance and um and and make it convenient to and this is something you hear priests and, and preachers complain about all the time about the, the the sort of ongoing corruption of the uh, of the of the spirit of the church and this is true no less true of paganism or buddhism or i'm sure any other religion than it is of christianity but it's a mm. it's an ever ever present struggle between you know do, do, will the dictates of you know day-to-day living alter our view of the transcendent and our relationship with it or will it go the other way will our view of the transcendent alter how we live our lives in the mm. day-to-day living and so much of so much of the and this is the thing that initially turned me off from christianity in in my youth in my high school years was um the unseriousness with which most of the attendants took this relationship mm-hmm. with your all-loving divine creator Mm-hmm. And this is like a pleasant thing to hear about on a Sunday over cups of coffee while socializing. And oh, thank goodness the kids are being taken care of for an hour and a half. Um, right. It's, and it's like, it, you're not acting like you believe this. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and, and one gets the sense that uh, of, of this in the, in the pagan world too. Some of the, some of the online Catholics are very fond of pointing out statistics 
correlating obesity with paganism. That's their favorite, their favorite statistic. Oh um, man. One of the Protestants, <laughs> I'm sure that, you know, I'm sure you overlaid that data, you know, you would, so you would you, see you similar to, things. You have to, you have to strategically combine denominations and then break them up um, to, to make things work out in your favor. But <laughs> exactly. Yeah, no, I, I yeah. um, there is, and, and this has actually been mm-hmm. noticed in more uh, denominations and more sections of Christianity than I realized. The unseriousness, the um, the lack of the lack of commitment, the the ungraspingness of like this is what we're actually doing. Like, do you understand, parishioner? You know what it is we're actually talking about here. And I've been reading many books and listening to lots of YouTube videos from a, a, a tight knit group of. Um, of uh, Protestant pastors who are actually beginning to address this. Michael Foster is a good example. Doug Wilson, and this past weekend at my church, the pastor Jeff Durbin. Yeah, he's awesome. The pastor Jeff Durbin gave a 75-minute sermon. So when he started Apologia Church 10 years ago, they started Matthew, and they've been working through the book of Matthew for 10 years. And just this past weekend— yeah, just this past weekend they got to the passion that, that Jesus Christ's death on the cross after 10 years. So my buddy Sean, who I went with, pointed out that it's possible that Jeff has been Pastor Pastor Jeff has been working on this for 10 years. This this speech for 10 years. I had tears in my eyes when it was over. Like the what the picture that he painted, I mean, it was like a 75-minute sermon, just crushingly beautiful. I was in tears afterwards to really get a glimpse of the majesty of what was going on. And where do these churches exist that really paint the picture? It's not 15-minute motivational speech. It's, no, I'm going to open the heart of this text for you, which wasn't written for entertainment. It's not like yeah. reading It's not like reading, reading the Hunger Games or Harry Potter or even Dickens or anything like that. It's, it's written in this very dry way. Let me open it to you so you can see it and really glimpse the majesty and the beauty of what we're talking about. And I felt I feel it really lands for the people at this particular church, which is why I feel lucky that I found it because I found the food that I need there. Absolutely, and I, I feel like that's a, a touches on a a broader cultural trend of of um, you know shortening everything, simplifying everything. Uh, <laughs> yeah. One of my favorite one of my favorite um, bands. Uh, I'm sure I'll get comments for this. Uh, Tool uh, is yes, famous Tool. for. Famous for not not just waiting ten years between albums, but also right. they put out these they put out these albums with like ten minute songs, twelve minute yeah. songs, and it's a it takes it takes time. It takes building to to get to the point where the um where you actually get the payoff of listening to the music, and that's the whole p- purpose of an album as opposed to mm-hmm. just listening to singles. And um, I get the increasing impression that we've always had these longer payoff um whether it's musical appreciation or or spiritual development and religious um you know substance um it's always there but it's always you know in the in the background against a a majority of of short time horizon quick return let's have a 2 minute yeah. pop song that makes me feel good and i go about my day um talking to my spouse while texting while doing you know three other things at the same time and never having to take time and sit down and focus and pay attention for any length of time um, which is mm-hmm. very convenient but you miss out on that on that depth uh, and uh, true appreciation of of deep beauty that takes time 
just to develop a taste for, let alone to put together, mm-hmm. um, which w- could arguably br- bring me to my favorite religious text, which is, um, uh, I, th- I think possibly related to the Bible, but is the, the epic works of Homer, mm-hmm. um, the Iliad and the Odyssey, which Excellent. are widely considered to be the, the greatest work of poetry ever un- unsurpassed, um, many times imitated, but never quite matched. And mm-hmm. they're not short. <laughs> no, um, they're not, not, not short. Um, but, but well worth the read. If you can take the time to, to read them and even better, if you take the time to learn how to read them, mm-hmm. uh, which is very similar to the Bible, I would imagine it's, it's one thing to read the Bible cover to cover. It's another thing to read the Bible, you know, accompanied with commentaries accompanied with discussions accompanied with exploring passages in, in depth a la Kierkegaard, a la any sermon at any church on any Sunday mm-hmm. in the country. And, and that, and I think that depth exists in the Iliad and the Odyssey um, in much the same way and, uh, and, and can be explored in similar depth, but largely hasn't been um, mm-hmm. mostly because we are a, we're a predominantly Christian culture and, uh, and the library of Alexandria burned down. So there's that too. (laughs) Yeah, there's that. No big deal. Well, it's, I'm glad you brought that up because I was listening to, I was on a long drive today and I was listening to an audio book and I I found, I I usually read print books, but I found my attention really strained. I'm driving, so I can't really do anything else but listen, which is good. Mm. But I find my attention wandering as I'm listening to this audio book. It's like, oh, I can see the, the, need, the, the need for dopamine, you know, just bringing my mind back to the It's like the a concept. muscle. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Well, it's very much so. It was really tiring, like doing that. I got better at it and was able to absorb the information better. But the, one of the things the book was talking about, coincidentally, was um, the Aeneid. And it was talking, he was talking about Homer as well and the notion of piety and duty and how piety is a word that we've mm-hmm. lost. And, uh, and it, it just struck me at the moment how, how limited my education in the Greek classics were. I mean, how limited I, I did a whole podcast on Hamlet's to be or not to be soliloquy um, in my Poetry for Men series. Excellent. Yeah, I, was, I, was, I, I say with humility that it's one of the greatest things I've ever created. I'm very proud of it because I spent months on it trying to understand it because it wasn't given, me, given to me during my education. I had a great education. It still wasn't given to me. So if me growing up right. with the benefit of one of the best educations in America was not exposed to the Greek classics in the way that I would, in the way that I would have liked in the way that I gather you have been, um, what hope is there for any generations that followed <laughs> me? So, so the, the chance to talk to you today is actually fortuitous because I, there's so much that I want to learn and you have this way of breaking down these classics in this, in this really relatable way. I listened to your, I listened to your, uh, your podcast about, uh, Plato's Republic. And I got it. Like, it doesn't mean I don't have to, it doesn't mean I don't have to read the thing, but at least I got the overall structure of it and I got your point. So I was excited mm-hmm. to talk to you to begin digging into some of these subjects. I know that you talk about them in the hero and the man and, uh, and, and on online as well. So um, I'm very curious to hear more about Homer. I've read the Odyssey, of course, and, and read bits of the Iliad, but I'm, I'm curious to hear more about this because I think these subjects will have a lot to teach men um, about our modern world, even though it was thousands of years ago. Oh, absolutely. Well, and one of the best books I think to to read about the Iliad and the Odyssey, uh, aside from mine, obviously, um, obviously, no, 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 much better than mine is um, "Why Homer Matters" by Adam Nichols, and um, 
he has a, a, a joke in there about how um, basically everyone is uh, can be broken down into either an Iliad person or an Odyssey person. There's some guys who are person. really, really into the Iliad and other guys who are really into the Odyssey. And very, very rarely is someone like into both. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, his dad was an Iliad person and Adam was a, an Odyssey person. But um, mm-hmm. the, my, the, my whole purpose in writing The Hero and the Man is an argument I hadn't heard many other people make and not in the way I made it is that these, these two books are, are not separate stories they are they are a um they're best understood in relation to each other and and together they're a a package um mm-hmm. as a as a christian might say that the the new and the old testament are a package and you won't make sense mm-hmm. of the new testament without the old and vice versa mm-hmm. um because they they express a development from one character archetype to another and it's and and both are mutually necessary for each other to exist so it's not that like one is better than the other although there is maybe a case that one is more desirable to be uh but that doesn't mean that it can exist independently and those are of derivatives of the first words of the two books respectively Mm -hmm. um i stop me if i start rambling here but my uh my my favorite for (laughs) minutes and minutes my, my listeners know Good. that my my favorite um current my current favorite uh philologist and homeric scholar is a harvard professor by the name of greg nage and um you spell that n-a-g-y so not exactly okay. um intuitive from the enunciation but right um many of his works are available online for free at the um center for hellenic studies which is a excellent resource but he makes the case that um all of these poems follow almost like a modern copywriting format where you have a headline that summarizes the story and then there's a subtitle that gives you a little bit more details and the first paragraph gives you a little bit more material a little more substance explaining what's going on and then you get into a more chronological account of of what happened and so in that manner, both the Iliad and the Odyssey begin the first several lines. Really, the first word gives a summary of the theme of the story. Mm-hmm. And the first lines elaborate on that theme, and then it goes into the story from there. And the first word of the Iliad is menin, it's, and it's, it means wrath or divine sanction, as another um, Harvard philologist, Leonard Mulner, pointed out. And it's like a it's the it's the wrath that inevitably follows a violation of the divine order mm. and it's variously alluded to even at the level of the gods themselves in the iliad but it's um it happens at um when agamemnon refuses to um accept a ransom for uh Chryseis. it happens when um achilles refuses uh, Agamemnon's offer of reconciliation, and it happens over and over again. It's this repeated theme, but they all it all ties into heroes, mm-hmm. and it's and it's what the Iliad is about fundamentally is about heroes, and it's about the tragedy of heroes, and it's about what it means to be a hero mm-hmm. more than more than any other book, and it explains um, what being a hero means 
And it explains that in the first few lines where it says, you know, sing God is the wrath of Peleus son Achilles murderous who cast thousands of souls untimely to hell, but their bodies were left on the fields to be eaten by birds and dogs of prey, strong, stout souls of heroes mm-hmm. to be eaten on the battlefield by dogs and birds. That's what a hero is about. That's what being as a hero is about. It's a doomed enterprise but they are being sung about in this song that's remembered 2,800 years later. Right. And is that a trade-off worth having? Well, some people say maybe it is. And so the, the Iliad, but the price of that is perhaps incurring this wrath, this menace. Mm-hmm. And there are many instances in the Iliad in which this line, daimoni isos, is used, which is like a superhuman force or like a god. Like a character is described as being godlike in their carriage, in their fury, in their in the danger they impose to their enemies on the battle. Mm-hmm. And I think with one exception, in every almost every case, that person is immediately killed. <laughs> so <laughs> so the, the price of becoming like a god for a moment mm. is death. And the, the the heroic question is, is it worth it to be like a god for a minute? And then die. And then and it's left sort of an open question. You can Do see the song? costs. You can see the costs. Well, that's the promise. Right. If I get to be if, the, I, if I get to be God for a minute and then I die, do I get a song? Because if I get a song, do then, you get a song yeah. about you, yes. Yeah. Well, they since <laughs> one one can only hope. And and one has to participate in that culture too, of course. Yeah, we we of see course. Achilles at one point when he's being approached um, to like, oh, please, Achilles, come back and fight for us. Um, he's sitting there playing um, a song to himself about heroes of the past. Mm. Um, and he is participating in that heroic, in the hero cult of of his area and of his culture. The hero cult that gave rise to there being a culture in which he participated in, and which motivated him to pursue this path as well. Mm-hmm. And that's the that's the frame that introduces the Odyssey. And the Odyssey begins with the word Andra, which means man. Man, sing to me, muse, of that man of twists and turns who traveled far and wide and saw many cities and came to knew their minds and suffered many sufferings and um and eventually, of course, wound his way home, but not mm-hmm. after uh having to endure a whole lot. Yes. And the man described there, this man of twists and turns, this very complicated man, as one translator put it, is a different archetype, a different, a different view of the world and a different view of language than the hero. Um, mm. And the argument I try to make is that um, you, need, you need heroes in order, not just, just to... Um, you know, defend your society. The original pre-Homeric meaning of hero was literally just protector. It was the guardian. He was the guy who went out and killed the lion that's trying to kill you and killed the cow and brought the meat back and killed the other person who was trying to kill your cow. Um, mm-hmm. He's the, the, the warrior, basically. But Homer introduced this idea that a hero is someone who can become immortal after they die if they live in a heroic manner. And it's that immortality through the word immortality through song and through poetry that 
Homer is summoning with the opening lines, sing to me muse of that man or mm-hmm. of the wrath of Achilles. Mm-hmm. Um, that is in question with the Odyssey. And I think my, my position, this is not my uh, unique argument. Many, many other people pointed this out in the past is that Homer gives something like an answer in the Odyssey, but you have to make it to the Odyssey to see the answer in the Iliad. And that's when Odysseus descends into the underworld. Um, he meets Achilles. Mm-hmm. And Achilles, they they speak for a little while, and Achilles asks about how his son is doing and so forth. And Odysseus is like, I have no idea. I'm sorry. But um, <laughs> Achilles uh, very explicitly says, I would rather be a servant to a tenant farmer among the living than king of the dead. I'd rather be a slave to a slave, mm-hmm. basically, mm-hmm. in the it, and, and be alive than be king of the dead in in this you know heroic fashion, which is interestingly an exact inversion of what uh, John Milton, who very intentionally emulated and attempted to imitate Homer's style, ascribed to Lucifer when he went down to hell. It said, "Better to reign in hell than serve in heaven." Mm-hmm. It's an exact inversion, and it gives some it gives some sense of answer to the question of is the heroic aspiration of being remembered forever worth pursuing? And Achilles, after achieving it better than almost anyone else, says the answer is no. Mm-hmm. So says Homer, who immortalized him, anyways. Right. Well, that the sort of I've got a couple different thoughts in my mind, but. Um, that sort of raises the question, though, is your desire to be heroic entirely about you? So from Achilles' perspective, he's like, it's totally not worth it. But what Achilles has created in, in thousands, of, thousands of generations and the heroism that he's inspired that maybe has not led to that level, I, you know, it's kind of hard to say. But from, yes, of course, from his perspective, no, it's not worth it. But yeah. do you but know? But we yeah, all benefited. Exactly. 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 So, how do you how do you how do you keep that? How do you balance those equations? Perhaps you can't. There's this great Nietzsche line where uh, Nietzsche says that um, nature uses our impulses to get what it wants out of us, and we 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 mistake what nature wants as what we want, and then we we act on it and bring bring much misery on ourselves, but improve civilization, the rest of the world through it. Reminds me there of might Dan, be something uh, like that going on. Reminds me of Richard Dawkins, like the selfish gene. It's a similar kind of argument where he kind of puts a pin on on what what maybe Nietzsche might have meant by nature. It's like it's our genes, right? It's sort of it's reductionistic, and and it you know as all the yeah. materialists are. But yeah, but one might say it's it's not it, it genes might have a, a role to it, especially where uh, you know being um, you know uh, sexually aroused is is concerned people do all kinds of things against their own self-interest in in that state um true but uh but but true. but which benefit and create future generations so um but there's also a an ideological element here where we see these heroes uh played out either on on film or we hear stories about them on the fire and we want to copy what they do not necessarily understanding the significance of it and mm-hmm. so um, maybe not a gene per se, but a, a, a heroic 
I want to use the word meme because that seemed feels so right. Den- denigrating the the grandiosity and the the significance of the concept, but a, a an idea and working in the interest of the idea. And given that the idea will outlast you, is it such a bad bargain to hitch your your life to that? Mm-hmm. It's an open question. Well, this also this reminds me of, of discussions about like the flow state. Like when you tr- when when someone when you truly like elevate is the term that I use. But when you mm-hmm. truly achieve the flow state in whatever you're doing, you are it's the it's the Zen notion of what non doing. You are not doing something is being done through you, and that is one of the most divine human experiences available. So when you are not doing and right. something is being done through you, and I can process that all kinds of ways theologically, we'll just keep it the way it is. When something is being done through you. To to live in that state in the moment in the moment of highest glory of allowing, let's call it broadly, life to manifest through you and your actions to become a willing portal that life can pour through in thought, word, and deed. Um, I think that that's that would be the transcendent experience of being of being the God and 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 maybe yeah. you know the the men who are the men who are going for that moment don't know that that's what they're doing. They want the bare feeling. Maybe they don't have the conceptual knowledge to know that like I'm trying to allow God to manifest through me in this glorious moment. And so when framed that way, maybe it is worth it. Like you get to actually be a piece of God for a minute. Perhaps, but what you're describing actually. um, So what Achilles and and a hero is going for is kleos is the, is the Greek word. And it's a a word many people have written a lot about. And it's this idea of glory and Mm -hmm. personal glory. You know, I'm going to go out and kill a bunch of people on the battlefield and everyone's going to remember me. And it's not just glory in the conventional sense. It also refers to the songs about glory. It refers to the songs that people write glorying in your actions. Mm-hmm. Um, poems like the Iliad, for example. Right. And um, what you're describing in this flow state, which you, from a Christian perspective, are framing in a manner of connection with God, actually ties into a different uh, aspiration entirely one we see in the odyssey which is nos nos is mm. mental connection with a with a an insinuation also of mental ability it's sort of odysseus's superpower it's his mm-hmm. ability to read people and connect with them and you could call it empathy but that word's been kind of butchered in the last decade just um, a little bit just, just mildly and and, <laughs> yeah. and that mental connection literally transforms him into into different people and it transforms his son telemachus when his Mm -hmm. son mentally connects with his father and it transforms his father laertes to the point where when laertes comes out of a bath after having been reunited with his son he went from being this beggar state person to coming out like a god and in this case like a god does it doesn't proceed being killed so Mm -hmm. um and that mental connection um I imagine that most Christians are not pursuing their faith for personal glory. They're pursuing it for this state of mental connection, or I guess theologically reconnection after mm-hmm. a historical disconnection. Mm-hmm. Um, can't speak personally, obviously, but sure. the, but the, um, the the experience you're describing there is something that uh that odysseus strives for and the argument that i think is unique to me um and that that makes it all 
infinitely more complicated and interesting is the role that language plays in both of these aspirations. You know, how are you going to be remembered forever through a language as mercurial and subjective as language? Right. What's that memory going to look like after a few telephone games through the ages? Is mm-hmm. the story we're reading called the Iliad, which is one English translation from a Greek book that wasn't even written in a, in a version of Greek that was ever spoken. Mm. Does that accurately convey what was going on? Is right. our version Achilles the same as Achilles who lived 12, you know, 1200 BC and it becomes no less of a challenge with the, with the question of Knowles. How do you communicate and how, how can you really mentally connect with other people through language or, or perhaps not through language um, across time or from a human to a God, perhaps uh, challenging enough as it is just with family members, you know, mm-hmm. sometimes just with communicating with yourself, your girlfriend, um, your wife. Exactly. <laughs> That's not what I said. That's not what I meant. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. And yet so, some, go ahead. Sorry. Oh no, no, go, go ahead. Well, and yet that's the thing. That's the paradox, right? Because when you actually break down language, how is it possible that you and I are actually actually having a, a, a conversation right now? Because the word, yeah. the meaning, the, the, the felt sense perception of a, the meaning of a word and, and all of its neural networking kind of sub-meanings to me and associations, I have to condense all of that down into, into single sounds that I've been broadcast to you that is now going through the internet, which are arriving to right. you and being unpacked by you and you're responding to me. How does it even work? But, but, and that's, yes. that's on a day-to-day level. What you were, we're talking about is on the historical level where some, some guy who may or may not have been named Homer wrote this thing that, about an event that may or may not have transpired in the way that it did. And yet, and now we're translating it into a language that hadn't even come close to existing you know, in, in any sense way back then. And now here we are in a world that looks nothing like it did back then and that something is being communicated across those thousands of years. How exactly, does that yes. even happen in a way that inspires and motivates? Well, and this is the great thing about heroes yeah. is in their, in their extremity, in their, in their memorable extremity, they become, they become icons for, the, for the, their features that make them memorable. And so you can be swift-footed like Achilles, for example, or angry like Achilles. You can be complicated like Odysseus. And the great thing about heroes and the stories that we inevitably tell about heroes, and this is perhaps the greatest value that Homer gave to us, and it, it sounds like an underselling of his work. It sounds like a dramatic underselling of the importance of his work until you grasp this language thing, is that he provided us with language to talk to each other in. You could, I've heard many, many scholars say that Homer was in many ways the author of unified Greece because it gave them all a shared story. Mm-hmm. It gave them mm-hmm. a place in the same story and a way to relate to each other, which in turn became uh, in some ways the author of Europe, the, or the, the story of, of Europe. Um, yeah. The yeah. knights trace their, the medieval knights trace their um, chivalric ideals back to nine great warriors, three Christians, three Jews, and three pagans. And the first of those pagans, and as well as 
chronologically the first of all of these knights that they derived their chivalric values from was Hector, the mm-hmm. great defender of Troy. And yeah. so this book, the Iliad, in a sense, set the tone for all of European chivalry and the warrior tradition of Europe. Wow. And yeah. was able to do that because of the power of that heroic story, because of those bodies being eaten by the birds on the battlefield. Mm-hmm. And I think also that that they could see something of themselves, they could see something of themselves represented in it. Like so, that, so there's the the right. thing as itself. Like you look at Achilles, and he is the man that he is, or Hector, and they've done the things that Agamemnon, all of them, they've done the things that they've done, and and that stands alone as something independent from the individual perceiving. But then there's right. also some mirroring quality where it's like I look and I see something of myself reflected in in that person in a powerful way that draws it out of me, that calls me forth to action, to act in emulation yes. of that, but not to be him specifically. Yes, exactly. And that, I, I have a chapter in there on uh, hero cults and cultic initiation. And um, I, uh, cult has acquired obviously a very, very sure. negative connotation in the last 50 years. <laughs> I'm, I'm using it, I'm trying to use it in a more anthropological sense here. Sure. Yes. Um, and what you have in, all of these cult uh, initiation rituals of the past was a was a reenactment mm-hmm. of some sort where uh, young people, usually young men, would participate in some behavior that reenacted the actions of heroes who were held in esteem. So in um, Greece, that was the uh, dramas, the tragedies in particular. Mm. The, there would be a a chorus which we think of in songs is like, oh, that's the part that the crowd can sing along to, which is kind of true. And, yes. and it's, it was the original purpose because that's the part that the youth participants who are being inducted into the hero cults of their locale would say. And it was often much more participatory than just repeating some bridge or some repeated you know, emotionally punchy lines from a song. They were, they were participating in a conversation as if they were that person. That's a sort mm-hmm. of first-person film experience of you acting out uh, mm-hmm. you know, a gold medal recipient or, or, or something like that. Mm-hmm. And um, you, uh, just for, for variety's sake, I included some northern examples too. There is a, um, among the Germanic tribes of the north around the Roman era, young men would dress up in black body paint when they went on raids. And the Romans believed this to be a terror tactic, a a way to intimidate enemies. But uh, later historians, one in particular, Chris Kershaw, was like, that seems really unlikely because they did this repeatedly and to each other and often Mm -hmm. in broad daylight. And it, it wasn't about scaring people, even though that might be a nice effect. It was about them literally taking on the identity of the dead mm. and then go out, try to kill someone or steal some horses or whatever, um, as your heroic ancestors had. And so it was a, a, an initiatory um, rite of passage where you take on another identity associated with that hero in order to become a, a, a part of the tribe and connected to the rest of the community through this common shared story that you don't only know but have actually lived to some degree. And that seemed to be the best, the best hope to gain the benefits from the, from the heroes 
and to keep them alive as well, to keep that those heroes who had died centuries ago alive and thriving in the present uh, w- without having to pay the price yourself for it. Mm-hmm. Well, or at least say, not intentionally. <laughs> yes. Well, it's not the, that's not the goal of it. Well, right. May, ho- yeah. Hopefully you don't have that be your fate, but that's, that's uh, I I've participated in, um, in a, a ritual at a men's, a men's group, a men's retreat that did something similar with ashes. I don't want to disclose which one it was because it's a big, it's a big part of the thing, but right. it was, it was a really powerful moment. These ashes were derived from a particular place and there was a whole process and the application of the ashes, it wasn't a lot of ash. It was, you know, it was, it was a, a, like not even a handful, a couple fingers full, just putting it on the face, you know, the application right. of that ash was, was, yeah. Yes. Of course. Anyone looking at looking at it, it might have a very intimidating kind of effect, right? As as you say, but the the subjective experience, my subjective experience of it was to bind me across space and time to brothers and men that I would never meet and, and never know. But it, it made me part of something, and it was yes. very powerful. It was very very powerful. I found, and you know, here's a group of fifty or sixty guys who had been strangers not hours earlier or the day before, I guess participating in this ritual and suddenly becoming this unified whole in pursuit of a mission. It's a very real yes. phenomenon. Exactly. I'm reminded Yukio Mishima has this line in Sun and Steel where he's describing this experience of being um, someone who carried a, a divan or, or some other sort of carriage object in a festival. And it was mm-hmm. these, these group of strong men who were carrying this very heavy object, the four of them. And he said it was this exhausting but almost euphoric experience and he says when these men look up at the blue sky they see a different sky than everyone else sees mm-hmm. and you can't communicate that but they all know at each other and it's the formation of those kinds of experiences i think that form the the foundation of that knows that mental connection that we can um that permits us to to speak to each other and understand each other and um, we kind of hope that we can do that by language alone. One, one gets the sense that, to bring it back to something you mentioned earlier, um, one gets the sense that Plato was trying to do that with the Republic to begin from the ground up. Can I, can I form a complete um, you know, education, essentially, a complete path out of, of childhood and into to wisdom by by creating my own mental connection i'm i'm still exploring Hmm. the republic myself so that's that's don't take that as a fact it's more speculation (laughs) yeah but um yeah the the creation of those shared experiences and 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 the you know a, a, a common footwork common reference for what we mean when we say a word as heavily baggaged as for example logos Mm-hmm. Like if yeah. you get two people with, from, from different academic backgrounds, you are not going to have, um, a common understanding of something like what, what that means. Not uh, it's hard enough to, to have common ground on what it means to be something as simple and straightforward as a man these days. Yes. Um, and, and so some of these deeper things, which we associate with the higher levels of meaning and, uh, more important, I, I forget who it was. Um, infinite just uh, david foster wallace famously mm-hmm. said we're all we're all divergent in our areas of our our highest appreciations of beauty and talent and skill and we're all common in our matters of, of, of crass humor and appreciation which is why 
television and music tend to be so low at the radio and, and public consumption level. Um, but we can still appreciate the high things, but it takes a degree of mental connection that is so difficult to do at a national scale, even, even between two people sometimes. I think I, I, I just had an interesting thought in response to that. This, this, and this may be what you're saying. So I was, I was sort of giving the example earlier of me taking all these different concepts in my mind and condensing them into words and then speaking them to you and then you unpacking them. And how does that whole magical process take place just between two individuals? And I guess I was being a little reductionistic with it in a way because the, the, there's the content of the communication, the actual words and the meaning. But what if, and, and this may be what you're saying, what if our ability to communicate or any two people's ability to communicate uh, effectively, particularly two men, let's reduce it to men, to communicate effectively is a product in some sense of the similarities of the suffering they both have been through. So you're talking about these Japanese men carrying the float. It's like they would have this bond of we've suffered in this particular way so that when I yes. say this word, I know that that's what you mean. Or like two police officers or two soldiers or two sailors or something like that. If they have a common bond of shared suffering, even if they didn't do it together, they can communicate better than two men who have had one man has had no suffering, et cetera, or completely mismatched in some way. Maybe not totally I, mismatched. I had never put that together before, but... um Boom. I'd, I'd never even it. thought of that associate, but uh, th- that is what Homer would say in the, in the beginning of the Odyssey. The man who had suffered much was also the man who understood many minds of men. Oh wow! <laughs> so so you just reverse you're, you're on point. You're on point there. Uh, suffering as the common. I would have said just experiences, but I think you're right because it, it's only with intense, memorable suffering that those get deeply ingrained. Um, mm-hmm. One of my favorite philosophers, a, a contemporary living philosophers, a gentleman named Matthew Crawford, once said, and I don't know if this is his original idea, I just heard it from him, uh, this idea of learning that we, we don't really, um, it's not like we learn things when we're told them. And he right. was using the example of automobile safety. Like someone will tell you some cue or some tip or trick to stay safer on a motorcycle and you'll put it in your brain and be like, okay, and then you kind of ignore it. And then mm-hmm. his close call theory was that you have to actually have a close call, some kind of near miss that's sufficiently traumatic that you remember it. Mm-hmm. And that's when the, um, that cue that you were told about clicks and it, it was there, but it wasn't really there mm-hmm. fully. And then once you, once you say, okay, I'm gonna, I'm gonna always be careful if I can see my shadow in front of me, because that means other cars can't see me as a motorcyclist. And so Mm -hmm. I'm cruising along and then I almost get, you know, head on collisioned by some car that drifted into my lane and I freak out and I run over the ditch and my pulse is racing. And I remember that cue and I'm like, Oh, got it now. And maybe Mm -hmm. I wasn't paying attention before, but in the future I will be. Um, Mm -hmm. and maybe you need that kind of adrenaline kick in the butt or that, that, uh, suffering in any capacity to kick it in place. Mm-hmm. It's when the knowledge becomes embodied, like literally embodied. Like if you know something just in your mm-hmm. head and there's certain kinds of knowledge that you can only know in your head, like a truly advanced mathematics or physics, like you can't know, I don't know these things. So maybe you can know them in your body, but it's a different example from what you're describing, yes. which is like actual living in the world. Like some in the world, someone can tell you everything you need to know about how to drive a car. But until if you get in the car and you feel, go ahead. Yeah. If it didn't rewire your brain, did, did you really learn it? 
Yeah, exactly. Well, you know, one of the things I often talk about is I used to be, I used to be a DJ, like a nightclub DJ. And oh, it was, cool. and, and, and yeah, it was, a, I, I love that. I love doing it. I still love doing it. I don't do it anymore, but it's, I was always very passionate about it. But one of the most interesting things that I had to learn when doing it is I could practice at home alone in, in my room, right. And, you know, with my little speakers and whatever, just to, just to learn the techniques and all that stuff. But to actually, and, and to, to make this point, to actually get in a giant nightclub full of like a thousand people and gigantic speakers, huge, massive bass bins, and to turn that on and to feel the massive amount of sound that's coming from every different direction, it's like the difference of what you're saying between theory and you know, head knowledge and body knowledge, because it right. becomes very physical very quickly. It's not so, like I, have to, I can do all this. It's all in the body. Or, or maybe a difference between knowledge and skill. Yes. Which is another yes. way of putting it. Because knowledge, the, the way that knowledge is framed today, and this is something that we we hear a lot from the sort of scientifically literate credentialed establishment, is that you know, knowledge, if it's if it is knowledge, it's fungible by definition. But there are certain but can there you are, ever know anything. Right. But but there are certain things that people can do uh, that they can't just explain. They can't just transfer. I could go you know, uh, learn from the best rock climber, how to climb rocks. And he could explain everything to me, mm-hmm. but that wouldn't, you know, that, that, that it's a, it's a skill that he has and has developed, um, and a body knowledge, like, like you, the way you put it. And it's, it's one of the other defining features of, um, of Odysseus. And, and one of the things that Homer spends a great deal of time dwelling on in, in both epics he Homer loves skill. Homer loves anything that is well mm. done, and he takes the time to describe everything that is well done. Whether it's a man, you know, Hephaestus smithing Achilles' armor in the in the the eighteenth or nineteenth book, or or if it's if it's just the men setting sail and uh, you know hoisting the the mast and and uh, loading the cargo and everything, he'll take the time to describe the fact that they did it with expertise mm. um, and everything mm. done excellently. And it's the sort of thing that you learn in the distinction between two, two modes of speech really that you see in the, in the Iliad and the Odyssey. And uh, it, it sort of ties in with Crawford's theory of learning. You have just the story, the direct here's knowledge that I'm presenting to you. But, and, and I, um, I very loosely call that logos, which is just like mm-hmm. reason or argument or or the word most literally. But um, what we see in the parts of the Iliad, but but more in depth in the Odyssey, is an, another mode of speech called inos. And inos is a is a cryptic mode of speech that's not designed to communicate something directly, but is designed to prime someone to see something differently in the future and to make a different choice in the future. And the hearer won't necessarily know what it is that they're, um, that they're hearing at the moment. They might be confused or they might not be persuaded, but the mm-hmm. hope is that, and, and you see this cause it's always an older person speaking to a younger person in the context of Inos. Mm-hmm. It's always, they say, you know, listen to what I have to say. Here's a sign. You can't miss it. And then they, they give some, some either uh, metaphorical story 
or they'll, they'll speak in some kind of strange riddle. And of course, the the thing I discovered after re-diving back into the Republic, um, which you alluded to at the earlier, um, and I started diving back into it because it was related to Homer, and I hadn't read it in 10 years, so it was sort of a, a fresh look, is that it's one gigantic Inos. It might be the best Inos mm. ever written. Mm-hmm. And the metaphor is this idea of a just city. The metaphor is this idea that we're talking about politics. We're talking about uh, what should we censor? What should we allow in the city? How do we need to breed our warriors best? But it's all this very cryptic, um, hidden method of trying to guide the subject, the object of the conversation, really. A young man named Glaucon, who is um, actually Plato's brother. He's the son mm-hmm. of Ariston, but both. Um, away from away from politics, away from the political life, and to become a private person who lives as a philosopher is the purpose. And it's mm-hmm. it's actually very very explicit uh, when you when you look for that sign because there are many many signposts, which is a key part of the Inos mode uh, that indicate that it's about you know oh the justice of a city is the same thing as the justice of a man for example. They say that like th- dozens of times. And uh, of course, the, the just city has to be led by a philosopher king, but the subjects need to be censored and their opinions need to be carefully guided. When you look at it, literally, it, it all falls apart and makes no sense. And the characters right. discover that, of course, in the text itself. But it's easy to forget that even when you're looking for it because it's so long and because it's so detailed and they get so enmeshed in in the depth of their of their storytelling which is of course part of the point is to to hide the to hide the intent from someone who doesn't necessarily want to be told what to do um and uh and of course some of the great political philosophers of the last decade wrote whole books about plato and misunderstood him <laughs> because they didn't have that mental connection i'm speaking mostly of karl popper here <laughs> um, he, he wrote this book called The Open Society, which was dedicated in equal parts to taking down Plato and Hegel. And mm-hmm. he believed that Plato's Republic was literal, even as Plato alludes to the Odyssey and the Iliad and talks about the choice of life that Achilles and Odysseus were offered as the purpose in in book one and book 10 as the bookends of this giant story and it's um it maybe just goes to illustrate the importance of of mental connection in in uh not just our personal lives but also in in enjoying uh these classical works which can be so so enjoyable um if if you take the time <laughs> so it sounds like I, I have I have not I confess I haven't I haven't read the Republic, uh, I've read some of uh, I've read some of the dialogues but not that particular one so mm-hmm. you know however when every time I hear it referenced I do hear it referenced in a form of um, 
critique or like, or, or like, oh, Plato said this. And right. it sounds like what you're describing is the whole thing is, is a little bit tongue in cheek. Like it's a little bit, it's a little bit like yes. talking to a young man being like, you don't want to get involved in politics. And now we're going to spin this big yarn that's designed to dissuade you from the whole thing. This is not what we actually think the ideal society should be structured like, which is how I always yeah. see it, that like it's some sort of model that everyone has critiqued over time to lead to the society we're in. It sounds like right. you're describing that that's not the case or the intention of it at well, all. And this was in this was in your podcast as well. Exactly. Well, the the, the characters themselves, uh, pl- uh, you know, Socrates and Adamantus and and Glaucon, you know, eventually decide. Well, this city would inevitably, you know, break down. This could never work in real life. Right. Yeah. Of course. Um, naturally, but the it's the it's the framing that's important. And the the Iliad and the Odyssey were so powerful in the classical Greek era. If you read Socrates' Apology, Socrates directly compares himself to Achilles you know, mm-hmm. as a hero, which is a, a pretty bold thing to do. Yeah. Um, and uh, and and these these heroes were so important to the Greek life that. Y- Someone like Plato could not have missed any significance of the allusions that you make to these sorts of of um, stories, and they're so, um, for lack of a better word, I hate to be crass, but they're so obvious. Um, <laughs> you know, having having so crass the the flip the Iliad, the Odyssey, and death. They're so they're so blatantly obvious, and I, mm-hmm. I guess the but. It's a it's a testament to Plato's skill that they're easy to forget even when you know to look for them because mm-hmm. he's so good at drawing the reader into this sort of almost hypnotic back and forth that he has Socrates do with with Glaucon to to draw him into the conversation. But to your point about Plato not saying anything definitively, the the, the characters contradict themselves in the context of the conversation itself. At one mm-hmm. point, they say, "Well, you know, we would need warriors who, um, you know, hate strangers but love, uh, you know, our own city folk." Mm-hmm. Well, I was like, well, "Well, but how could we have someone who loves and hates in that same way?" I guess it's impossible, and they they feel like they've been stumped. And then Socrates is like, "Wait a second, puppies are <laughs> like that," and so like they, they it's it's this constant <laughs> back and forth of of contradiction and counter argument and does this counter argument work no it doesn't and of course as i mentioned before the the arguments when you look at them objectively are they're not just self-contradictory they're so obviously self-contradictory it's actually funny like it's mm-hmm. once, once you understand how much plato is relying on homer in in his worldview in his is pointing out how Odysseus chooses the the right path at the end, but immediately mm-hmm. proceeds preceding that he's like, well, we would need to censor Homer too. Like <laughs> yes. we would need to keep Homer out of this, and like like a, a, a you know a Plato of today would be like, and we would need to censor Plato, of course, as well. Like we would be, <laughs> we would, we would need to censor needless dialogues that might confuse people who don't understand them. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's so it, it's amusing and playful and the purpose is to get people to look for those contradictions themselves which is all socrates mm. is doing in that conversation anyways that's um, incredible yeah and well, and it's well, uh go, go ahead. ahead oh well i mean like that's that's the impression that i've gotten of re- repeated exposures to um 
to critique of Plato's Republic is that what he actually ends up describing is this, you know, infinitely complex kind of societal machine that must be held in place by very strict controls that no human society could actually reproduce. That what he, in right. the way that it's framed, is that he's advocating for this crazy hyperstructured society. And to, yeah. to hear you tell it, it's like, yeah, the, there's no way that Plato would actually do that. And that's always conflicted with my understanding of Plato. It's like. Plato doesn't seem like that kind of authoritarian. Like he just yeah. doesn't seem like he's he's very much about open dialogue and questioning. So he why would he build a society that you're unable to question it? That just seemed very counterintuitive for, to who he was. For context to anyone who might listen to this who hasn't read The Republic or doesn't know what we're talking about, um, Plato advocates what we would today call the the worst blend of fascism and communism. <laughs> You know, like, <laughs> Fair. like we, we have to, we have to, we have to lie to the public about virtually everything to keep them compliant, but we would never permit <laughs> our own leaders, you know, permit them to lie about anything, obviously, because that would be immoral. Of and course. Or our, we, the, the warrior class, we would have to hold our, our wives in common. We couldn't, we couldn't have personal wives because that would create conflicts of interest. And, and so this way, no one would know who their children would, and we would have an equal obligation to everyone. And uh, we would have to do away with, with music. We would have to have like strict oversight of the creation of art. And in fact, all crafts and, um, and the person running this city would have to be incredibly wise, just, just the wisest of the wise whose knowledge is impossible for the public. Oh, and Socrates, the, the justice of the city is like the justice of the man, right? Yes, exactly. Okay. So anyways, back to our censorious city where no one's allowed to know anything. Right. It's, it, it, it's when you, when you step back, it's, it is so self-contradictory. It's, it's, um, it becomes fun to, mm -hmm. to read. And, and that's one of the things that makes Plato so, so easy to come back to and so easy to enjoy is it's very easy to read philosophers like, you know, Kierkegaard or Nietzsche or, Sartre or Hegel or, or, or Heidegger and to be like, uh, you know, Kant is probably the worst. It's, it's just so, <laughs> it's so complicated and it's so, uh, I couldn't say this about Nietzsche, but, but so like direct and serious about mm -hmm. everything. And, and Plato really is, um, fun. <laughs> yeah, um, he is. He can confirm. And, and I would not have, and I would not have even had this view, um, had I not been diving so deeply into Homer, you know, for the last two or three, well, last 10 years, but really the last two or three years. Um, but once you, once you see that it becomes more visible and uh, you can, with that, I guess, like I was saying before that, that mental connection makes, uh, makes understanding a little bit more possible and hopefully makes the reader a little wiser. Uh, but not if they don't have that mental connection. Then they go off and write books like The Open Society instead. Well, I mean, this, this, I was think, kind of thinking this, like, is it possible that the men uh, like Karl Popper who have critiqued Plato from this, this position, you know, is it possible that they haven't been able to communicate with him because they haven't been through the, the body of shared suffering, let's say, that, that he has? Not to say what his shared suffering might be, but it's like they don't – Karl Popper, academic, you know, uh, uh, professor, philosophy – 
very particular way of living that probably does not map to the way Plato was living. So Plato will communicate in such a way that Karl Popper or whoever is just not going to pick up on. They're not going to get the irony of it. They're not going to be able to laugh at it. They're going to take it way too seriously because they've, they've never been punched in the face as my buddy KJ might've said. Yes, exactly. Um, there's a very, there's a very big difference between the um, classicists of let's say the 19th century and the classicists of today um, mm. in I'll be crass again in uh, physiognomy. Just you can you can just kind of look at them. <laughs> There's a, the the <laughs> most famous. If you ask any Homeric scholar who the most famous Homeric scholar is, they'll they're going to say Albert Lord uh, and his student whose name escapes me at the moment. Not a very good sign of fame, I know, but um, Albert Lord uh, went around the uh, mountains of Eastern Europe with you know hauling this giant vinyl recorder with him and recorded thousands upon thousands of hours of local like bards performing oh, their songs wow. and he wrote this huge track this is a dude who's like running around the mountains with like you know gun-toting locals on goats to just to hear their music and to compare it to each other and to see if this has anything to do with you know poetic traditions of the past like homer and he found that, in fact, they did. Um, and he's the author of this composition and performance idea that these lines were not memorized, but that you had a like a, a dictionary collection of lines that would all fit together. And the poet or the bard would literally be creating a new version of the poem as he performed it while yeah. performing it. And this was, uh, you know, revolutionary at the time. And this is a dude who as you say, was kind of off in the wilderness doing things, not like a, a journalist, you know, sniping Twitter for something to repeat, um, mm-hmm. which one gets the sense that a lot of, a lot of um, modern scholars, not just in the classics, but, but you know, scientists and, and uh, scholars in general, like wh- why do an original, you know, research project when I can just do a meta analysis and take a bunch of other people's things and repackage it. And right. Um, you can you can get very stagnant that way very quickly. The subject of men and jewelry is tricky. As my friend and style coach Tanner Guzzi might say, it's best to wear pieces that have personal meaning to you rather than wearing an accessory just to wear it. But how can a man find a meaningful piece in a sea of cookie-cutter Chinese garbage? The answer is hand craftsmanship and one-of-a-kind wearable works of art made right here in America. Which brings me to our sponsor, Deepwell Designs. The proprietor Thomas William handcrafts silver and precious stone pieces to meet your specifications. He's been making them for over 20 years, having learned lapidary and silversmith from his grandfather as a boy. And the results are spectacular. His pieces sing with style, quality, and care. On his website, you can see rings, necklaces, bracelets, cuffs, pendants, belt buckles, and more and pieces for both men and women. He even just made me a silver Christian cross necklace, which arrived the other day and looks amazing. He banged it out literally in about a day. We exchanged DMs with sample photos and he nailed exactly what I wanted. And I'm not easy to shop for. I'm picky about who I choose as sponsors for my podcast. They must be high integrity, talented, one of a kind, and different from the typical type of podcast sponsors. And Thomas meets all my requirements, which is why I'm thrilled to introduce him to you today. 
I'd say more, but rather than telling, I'd prefer to show you what I mean. So visit deepwelldesigns.com or head to Instagram at deepwelldesigns00 and use the code RENOFMEN for 15% off any piece, including custom orders. If you don't see anything you like, just message, and I bet Thomas can make it for you. Once again, that's deepwelldesigns.com or deepwelldesigns00 on Instagram and use the code RENOFMEN for 15% off. As men, I believe it's important to support our fellow creators, so I hope you'll take a minute to help a talented one out and look great in the process. It's a sort of the brain in the box phenomenon where it's like yeah. you get someone who gets so deep into a project, you know, or, or studies and they live at it behind a desk and they never actually right. get out there into the world to experience anything. And that lack of em- embodied knowledge, that lack of any sort of applicable skill feeds back. Go ahead. Right. And to your point, I got, I, I lost the point there. Um, to your point, the, not only are those people who are repeating things uh, going to miss out on the experience of, of new things, they're not even going to be able to properly understand the things that they're repeating because they didn't right. do the things that those, those uh, more courageous scholars before them did. Yeah. So they, they, so. yeah. So, so someone like Albert Lord is, is around, is, is going around with a recorder. What year was he studying in oh, the 20th century? Some point. I want to say the 1920s. Uh, oh, wow. Don't, don't quote me on that. It might be later. It might've been in the forties actually, because there were some very funny Greek, uh, Greek stories he caught of from world war one from world war one, I, I believe that were only only 15 or 20 years old and already uh, wildly divergent from what historians had actually <laughs> documented. He's like, yes. I don't think these are historical accounts we're dealing with here. He was eight feet so. tall and he sprayed lead from his eyes. No, I mean, that, yeah. I mean that's, that's, that's really bold, groundbreaking research in proof of a point. You right. know, it's, it speaks to an age of adventure that I think men don't really experience anymore. Go ahead. And it, and it really shattered the, um, the, the almost, you know, spiritual connection that a lot of people thought they had with Homer as this sort of archive of the true events of the past that had been oh, sure. held prior to that. And if you don't view Homer's primary contribution as this story, not just the story, but the storytelling medium, the manner in which we can still tell stories to each other, which was itself fairly new at the time. Um, it would be easy to be very disillusioned and to feel mm-hmm. like your your worldview had been shattered. Mm-hmm. Whereas, you know, if you were a bard traveling around as as Homer did to make money, you probably wouldn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. One would imagine. Well, well, that it, it, when I sat down to read the Iliad. Well, I think it was last year, 2020, something like that. I read the I read the introduction to the book. It was some new translation. I didn't particularly favor it, but I, I mean, I know there are so many different versions. But it was really it really stressed this this point that the uniqueness of of uh, Homer's writing was not in it being a historical account. It was in it was in the in how the thing was constructed. You yes. need to actually understand that this was how this great poem was performed 
you know, almost extemporaneously, you know, with, with pre-made things, you know, pre-made lines and segments that are repeated. So you have a minute to rehearse that before you figure out what the next thing is and these patterns and to really be able Mm. to step into the glory of the, of the performance of it. And I felt that in reading that, that's so much more enjoyable for me to be able to imagine that than to take it as some sort of literally true historical account. Oh, absolutely. And the, the, the depth of that creative process is such that my, my wife got me this book from the 1860s. I want to say it was a commentary on, on Homer's Iliad in the Greek about how, um, the, the Greek used in Homeric epic was not a version of Greek that was ever spoken by anyone. Mm-hmm. And that was because some of the lines borrowed from, was it Aeolic from, I, I don't remember offhand, but, uh, some of the words were, were borrowed words. And so the poet had to choose in translating it to his local vernacular. Do I change the entire line in order to accommodate translating these certain words? Or do I just keep the words as is and cross this like essentially like, you know, using French in the English language to, mm-hmm. to make a line fit better. And they just stuck with it. And certain lines have completely borrowed Greek that, were not used in the, in that vernacular hmm. and it creates its whole own system, which I'm sure uh, as a poetic experience would have been like a strange mixture of normal English and Latin Vulgate at the, uh, <laughs> at mass or something like that. You right. Know? It's like Spanglish a little bit. Right. Yeah. And, and so that one, creative process. Anyways, go ahead. Yeah, no. So I wanted to actually go back to something that you said uh, earlier about the Odyssey and the Iliad, because it reminded me, it reminded me of an experience that I had in a Buddhist meditation retreat. Um, and you talked about the Iliad is very much about wrath and heroism, and the Odyssey is very much about the man. Um, Achilles famously makes the decision to be a hero and to never have a wife and kids or family. And Odysseus's whole story is just about trying to get home to his wife and kids and family. And in fact, desired nostos, yeah. Yeah, and, and also like Hector is is also the family man who is defeated by the 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 pure warrior of Achilles, and it's sort of it's sort of, and I love the juxtaposition of these three powerful characters of the choices that a man has to make in his life. What is he? What are you going to be? What are you going to pursue? Because these things are somewhat at odds. You know, the notion yes. of being the transcendent hero often, in some sense, comes at the expense of of a wife and kids, right? And and this uh, right. this this showed up in a Buddhist meditation retreat. And I'll bring this up because someone sent me a question. I don't remember who a long time ago about is this choice, is it a false choice or is it a real, real choice? So at this Buddhist meditation retreat, this Vipassana meditation retreat in the mountains of Kashmir, it was 10 hours of Buddhist meditation a day for 10 days, silent meditation retreat. It was wonderful. It was wonderful. So it was this very, it was this very austere environment. Um, you know, very rigorous schedule up at 4 a.m. to meditate for two hours and then, you know, breakfast silent and then an hour of meditation and then two hours. And so it's structured like that for 10 days. And I achieved some pretty profound states of consciousness during during that retreat, um, which, you know, which lends some credence to the, the Buddhist notion of attaining enlightenment, that if you spent your lifetime doing this, you know, you would eventually find your way out of samsara, not to advocate on behalf of Buddhism, but, you know, to find right. your way out of samsara and enlightenment and merge with uh, all that is or something like that. So the thing is, it's not actually possible to, to have a, home, a, a life if you do that. That's all you're doing. That's all you're right. doing. And so that path is, is directly counterposed 
to the path of the householder, which is the man who has a wife and kids and family and a business. And so there was a, and not every man is called down the path to meditate for 10, you know, 10 or 12 hours a day. Most right. men are actually called down the path to actually be householders. And so I got a question from one of my, one of someone on Instagram a long time ago asking about this very notion of, is it possible to blend, you know, being this transcendent warrior, excellent, he didn't mean specifically in a warrior sense, he meant some specific pursuit with, with being a householder. Can a man walk yes. both those paths? And it sounds like Homer was addressing that very question in a way. Yes. Um, the, the answer I saw in Homer's work, and this is somewhat interpretive, so people will have to take it uh, with the you know grains of salt they think it's worth. Um, Odysseus was reluctant, though he may have been, on the heroic path. He mm-hmm. went out with the Achaean warriors and fought at Troy. He was primarily responsible for the sacking of Troy. Of course, so the story goes. And, um, you know, when he gets home, he has to deal with all of these suitors, all -hmm. of these men who did not go off to fight, who stayed at home and who lacked the mental connection to a recognize who the hell they were dealing with when this old beggar (laughs) came back in. And they lack the mental connection of their own, um, you know, island nation to know what was right and proper and how to treat each other, how to treat a mm-hmm. guest or how to act as a guest towards a host. And so, and Telemachus could not wake up to this, to his new, more manly personality until he had this mental connection with his father, which yes. was that just a thought? No, he had to go out. He had to get in the boat and go off to Sparta. He had to go off and visit the places his father went to try to find him. And it was that departure, that going through the motions of, of, um, well, heroic initiation. And without that, um, one could argue you cannot even become a man, an archetypal man, if you haven't gone through that heroic phase. So as far as, you know, how do I, uh, how do I choose between these two? Well, it's kind of a, you, you can't have the man without the hero mm-hmm. and, uh, you can now you can be a hero and be unlucky. <laughs> and so right. you never be, become the, the, the homeowner, the, um, you know, the Odysseus who gets to return home. It's also possible that you are a respected homeowner. And circumstances require you to be a hero, mm-hmm. um, like Hector. And I mean, if you do a decent job of it, even if you and your whole family are killed, an entire order of warriors for fifteen hundred years might follow in your stead. True. This is a consolation of sorts, <laughs> mm-hmm. you know. Um, but that you know that outcome was probably out of your control to begin with. Mm-hmm. So there is still some consolation to the offer of immortality that poetry offers, teases with, one might say, because mm. um, you know the Odyssey is full of metaphorical uh, temptations. The sirens are offering to sing to Odysseus about the Battle of Troy, about his own exploits, mm. and he has to sail past them. Polyphemus, the uh, one-eyed monster in the cave, Polyphemus means many stories. 
the the name means many stories. Mm-hmm. And of course the the one-eyed giant is, you know, you could say a, a metaphorical represent I hope I'm not sounding too much like Jordan Peterson here. Um <laughs> a, okay, a, a sort well. of metaphorical representation of the the larger than life hero. Achilles is described as larger than life in the text. Mm-hmm. Uh, who is single-mindedly focused on achieving his Kleos. Um, mm-hmm. his glory and that that single-minded focus is the opposite of this many-sided complicated odysseus who can wear many hats and speak in different ways to different people in order to achieve his nostos and yes. so the the temptations of heroism are uh something to be not avoided entirely but you have to balance it very well and um there's an excellent inos uh given by um, one of the older characters in the Iliad, when he's telling his son how to win a chariot race at Patroclus' funeral, he says, "When you're when you're coming around," and he takes great time and detail to describe exactly the way to bring your chariot around this marker so that you don't crash and burn on the inside, but so you don't lose and fall out on the outside either. And the thing that they're racing around is a tomb to an unknown hero from ages past, mm-hmm. and it's like. The, the perfect Inos to close the Iliad on. I like how I like this, the single mindedness. That's a really good distinction because the way that um, the way that this, this person who wrote into me framed it was around um, was around specifically the choice of, you know, I think you wanted to be some sort of fighter or something like that. Um, because I remember talking about like Conor McGregor and did Conor McGregor lose a step when he had kids or something like that. Not that this wasn't a question that I could answer, but I understood what he was saying. And mm-hmm. and so when you say that, um, you know, single mindedness versus many mindedness, I think that captures it because I, I it would be really easy to sort of, um, let's say in the words of Dr. Shanti Smith, operationalize it in terms of the choice between self and family or monk and householder but really mm. it's the the choice is about single mindedness versus versus many mindedness like are you def- right. are you wired towards single not every man is wired towards single mindedness but there is a place for it in, in every man's life but are you going to make that single mindedness your life that's the other question right. or do you go through phases of single mindedness and then do you transition into into many mindedness or can you hold that line and decide no i will be single minded forever which I, which some yeah. men are, I think, naturally wired for, but a very small percentage, which is the point that I made to him. Right, and it's, uh, I mean, out of the classics and into experience, you know, there are there are times in your life where it's very very useful to be able to shut out, um, you know, negative thoughts and, and distractions that would distract you from doing something that's very important, right. whether that's, you know saving someone's life or saving your own life or, or just doing your job well and not getting distracted by, by something that's getting you down or, or depressing you or, or what have you. Um, but it's very easy to, you know, conversely, uh, get so focused on being tunnel vision that you lose sight of what's around you and you can't even do that one thing because, you know, you neglected some obstacle that was coming from your right. And mm-hmm. so even, even to achieve that one thing, if, if there's only one thing you want, you, you have to be looking in many directions anyways, which is why mm-hmm. Achilles, the greatest warrior of the Greeks, um, Greg Nash has another book called the, the greatest of the Achaeans, which is about 
who was who was actually greater was it achilles or odysseus the man who most wanted to be there to win glory and who was the greatest fighter was not able to sack troy it was the guy who didn't want to be there but who was able to think from many perspectives from many angles and was Hmm. playing all those angles at once so that he could get home who was able to eventually sack the city with the trojan horse and so interesting the 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 breakdown of is it better to be one or the other is a you know i i think you're right there's a time and a place for both but as a as a holistic man in the in the full scope of what it means to be a man as described and idealized by homer you have to you have to be um you have to be both i i I wanted to say many-minded but you know odysseus is so single-mindedly set on getting home that (laughs) it's it's a it's sort of a false dichotomy i suppose yes well that's there was there was something that I wanted to say into that that just kind of that just kind of um, flew out of my mind and, and maybe it will uh, fly maybe it will fly back in but um, just to just to I like I, I do like the idea of uh, false dichotomies that maybe that's not the best way because it can be very easy to to collapse all thinking into binaries is it this way or is it or is it that oh it was about home it was about uh, Odysseus and Achilles the notion like well okay so Achilles is like full send glory. And isn't actually able mm. to accomplish, you know, his aim versus, uh, you know, I'll, I will die on this hill. Let's let's frame it that way. Right. And you have Odysseus was like, actually, no, I kind of want to live and get home to my wife. And so maybe he's like, maybe we can figure out a, a more creative strategy than just brute force, full frontal assault at it, and figure out something that may actually be effective. And and I think mm-hmm. that's um that that's a very that's a very powerful um that's a very powerful lesson that because I think you know Thumos would would drive uh would drive many men to like i said i'm going to die on this hill you know full yeah you know, versus like well let's let's dial that back a little bit and see if we can um let's see if we can find the smarter way to do it yeah and and the the particular danger of heroism our our friend jack donovan has has described in the past you know young men who are you know fiery and full of passion are on the one hand, very, very lovable. It's, it's a great energy to be around people like that. And you can't help but like, you know, high energy driven guys, yeah. but they can be very easy to wind up and send in a direction that's advantageous to someone else. Yes. You know, and and it's something that it's, it's not hard to see examples of it around. And so it's bo- both things are double edged. I, I, I shouldn't leave people hanging with the idea that uh, you know being a man is so much infinitely better than being a, a hero because a hero dies and the man lives. There are many points in the Odyssey where uh, at least two I can think of offhand where Odysseus says um, something to the effect of, oh, if only I could have just died on the battlefield so at least people would remember me rather than being stuck here like dead at sea or mm-hmm. alone in this island or something forever. And, uh, you know, it's, it's not too hard to imagine of an alternative reality in which that happened. I'm sure there are many instances in the world of men suffering, you know, ignoble fates like that, where they could have chosen glory, but instead died, um, as unknowns without even their, their return home. Mm -hmm. So it's a, it's a, it's a tough, 
tough line to walk between uh, perhaps Homer's most famous metaphor between Charybdis and Skyla, the the six headed monster and the and the whirlpool. Mm-hmm. The the Odyssey is the one that I the one that I have read, and uh, I was on a sailing adventure. I've done I've done quite a bit of traveling. I was a, on a sailing adventure through the South Pacific. And so I, I read books, I read books about the ocean. So I read Moby Dick. Mm-hmm. I read, uh, I read, uh, Robert Louis Stevenson, Treasure Island. And I read, uh, and I read the Odyssey and to, and to hear you, uh, describe, to describe these stories in this metaphorical way really, um, really brings it, really brings it to life because I, you know, in, in, in reading the bits of the Iliad that I have, I, I find it to be very, um, grounded and square and violent and aggressive um and the bits that i've bits of it that i read and i found the odyssey to be quite a bit more um fantastic and a bit more playful quite a bit more playful and a bit more i guess i, I guess a bit more round i guess i would i would describe it and yes. and i i really appreciated like the contrast of that that they would be that those two great works would come from the same the same poet and to hear you describe these you know these adventures and misadventures that uh that uh, Odysseus gets into really helps bring it to life as a metaphorical tale in a bit less like no this is actual historical fact. Yes, exactly. And it, it uh <laughs> your your description there reminded me of my my absolute least favorite quote about the Iliad I ever or Odyssey I ever heard. Um Adam Nichols who I can't recommend highly enough his Why Homer Matters was giving some talk and he was being interviewed by of all people like the Cambridge chair of Greek studies or, or someone who should have known better than to say something that they're about to say. And this academic said, well, the Iliad was clearly written by a superior intelligence because it's, there's the, the opening line sums up the entire plot and it's so grand. And it, then it plays out exactly like that. And it's so brilliant. Whereas the Odyssey is just one damn thing after another. And I remember him saying that, what? and it was like, it 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 it, it's, it could not be more wrong. It's the the Odyssey begins in the middle. The Odyssey begins with Odysseus already, uh, you know, shipwrecked and alone on an island, and then the gods are like, "Well, it's time to do something about him." And then we go, you know, forward a bit without even seeing Odysseus. And then we have to go back and hear the story of what happened before. And it's all over the place, but it all weaves together in this very complicated story that matches the complicated man. Whereas it's the Iliad. That's one thing that happens after another in chronological order. And it's um, maybe another point of that uh, uh, Noel's and and the failures of academics for, for lack of mental connection with their writers. I'm sure it's very hubristically, hubristic of me to say this because i have not uh you know spent uh you know time in greece i my my greek is limited to certain words that are important to the iliad Mm -hmm. and the odyssey of course so uh, there's but but that's one of the great things about studying the classics is there's it is a bottomless well of of uh knowledge and and fascinating points of connection and i think the thing that got me about that professor um, I have the quote in the book uh, <laughs> because it was worth immortalizing. Um, but was the was the the audacity and the certainty with which he just said, "Oh, this was such a, a dumb book by comparison." 
Um, mm-hmm. And I I would agree with your um, view entirely. That yes, the Ili- the the Odyssey is a circular book. It's about coming back. Mm-hmm. The, the the whole concept of nostos, which is so critical and etymologically related to nos as well, interestingly, um, is is that returning to home. Um, it, it's not just it's not just going to a new place. It's circling back, mm-hmm. renewed. Because that mm-hmm. closing scene in the palace with Telemachus and so Penelope and the suitors and and the and the and the great bow. And, and yeah. I guess historians still haven't been able to reconstruct what it was that he did, what he, what it was he shot through. Like they just don't really know, but yeah, they get that it, it was yeah. heads or was it the holes where the axes get their shaft or who knows? It's yeah. just a, it's such a triumphant scene because you suffer with this man through these frustrations like, Oh my God, another thing, another thing. Well, and that's the power of the story, right? The man Mm -hmm. trying to get home. And we've all been in that experience. Like maybe we won't all get to be glorious heroes dying and having songs written about us on the battlefield, like Achilles. Right. But all of us can, can appreciate the struggles of just struggling to get home, whatever home is, whether it's our actual home or just do the damn thing. How many, how many movies, how many comedy movies are made about the guy trying to get home? There's something Odyssean. Is that even a word? Homeric, I suppose, you know, about planes, trains, and automobiles is Homeric in nature. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And, and the value of it isn't even just for yourself either. I mean, the, we all remember and know the scene of Odysseus and, and Telemachus together killing the suitors. But the last heroic killing in the Odyssey is not done by uh, Odysseus or Telemachus. After they've slain all the suitors, um, you know, the local Ithaca villagers are quite upset about them butchering their kids. So they've gotten together (laughs) and they're going to go fight this, you know, Telemachus and Odysseus in his household. And who should join the the party but Laertes, Odysseus's father, who's this mm-hmm. old disheveled man. He's beyond heartsick about losing his you know son at sea years ago, only to have him come back as a mm-hmm. as this glorious man and retake yeah. his household. And he is just a new person. He's been reinvigorated. And so, anyways, the the three of them are with their you know household servants marching off to meet these uh, these. Um, you know, other Ithacans who are um, wanting to to kill them. And he's hearing his, his son, uh, you know, basically remind his grandson that we Ithacans are great warriors and don't shy away in battle. And they're basically trying to one up each other, this father and son combo. Mm-hmm. And he's, you know, making his grandfather heart swell to hear his young boys talk like this. But then, when the actual battle begins, only one spear is thrown and it's Laertes who throws the spear mm. and gets right through the forehead of the father of the chief suitor who mm. had been uh, uh, causing trouble previously too. And then Athena intervenes and says, let's, let's not do this. Mm. But um, you know, it, he, this old man who had never done anything, you know, notable aside from helping build this household is, you know, now gets a heroic passage precisely because of the transformative power of his son's homecoming and the power of the hero in the Iliad and the Odyssey is not necessarily for the benefit of the hero, but for everyone around them. Mm -hmm. 
That's just, it makes me think in so many different directions about, about the power of when we redeem ourselves, when we go on our own transformative journey, when we, when we do set out on this grand adventure and do perhaps even try to be the, 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 the transcendent hero, you know, mm-hmm. if we if we achieve even the smallest measure of our aim with honor and integrity, when we come back, I mean, this we are renewed, and this is the classic Campbell hero's journey. You know, to, right. to go on the hero cycle, and then and then you know the magical flight home for Odysseus is quite a bit longer than than it is in other in other epics because <laughs> it's kind of the that's kind of the trip that shapes him. But he comes mm-hmm. back, and yes, the house is a mess, and and the suitors are pursuing his wife, and she's kind of beginning to weaken a bit in her resolve as my husband coming home. He doesn't have text messages email and his son is floundering and his grandfather is you know is, is withering and his own even his dog which is like one of the best parts of the odyssey the dog Dude, yeah. it still makes me cry keep yes. one wag and then dies <laughs> exactly it's just like it's but it's such a it's such a a, a very heartfelt portrayal of what it means to be a man mm-hmm. in, in a very well-rounded way in a way that isn't quite portrayed in the iliad probably probably um intentionally in a way because you can look at that single-minded hero of achilles and see the way that he's lionized in the end that he ultimately comes to versus this this man who has been on his own adventure not quite to the same degree of eternal glory but is able to have a broader experience of of life and touch more lives in the process directly as opposed to song exactly well the 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 men archetypal men you know the nestors the um phoenixes uh, of the iliad are so overshadowed by the by the the fury and the energy of the of the young heroes there it's like you know nestor tries to talk sense into achilles and agamemnon and they're both just still angry phoenix tries Mm -hmm. to talk achilles into reconciling and he's just no just not not having any of it uh when chryseus tries to talk to agamemnon he says you know be gone and don't come back or i'll kill you basically and these old men are essentially powerless to to save these young men from the, from themselves mm-hmm. uh, and only once does a man manage to break through and that's at the very end of the iliad perhaps the best known scene from the iliad when priam manages to sneak into the achaean camp and ask achilles for the body of his son back and he, but he doesn't do that by just berating him in the way of Nestor saying, oh, I was around when the warriors were greater than you. He, he, does it, <laughs> right. he does it by saying, by reminding Achilles of his own father. And he says, think of your own father at home and how much he misses you and how he'll never see you again. Think now of me and my son that I can see and will never see alive again. And it's that it's he in that instant created a connection between himself and Achilles' father. And Achilles, he just killed Hector and then dragged his body around the city, attempted to desecrate it. And, um, you know, Priam comes and asks for his body back and Achilles begins to cry, thinking of his own father. That's how, you know, powerful that message was. And, um, I, it's almost an introduction to the to the different mode of of speech we see in in the Odyssey. This Ainos focus rather than the Logos focus, because so much of the so much of the Iliad is these Bronze Age warriors uh, challenging each other and taunting each other. Though, like mm-hmm. you know, someone stabs a spear through someone's spleen, and the person screams in pain and 
collapses to the ground and they're like, ha, guess you won't be going home tonight. Like they, they talk to each other that way. <laughs> they do. They, they, they're like, it's, um, it's, uh, brutal and it's very, it's painfully direct as, as direct in speech as was their direct attack on the city, which didn't work. Mm-hmm. And it was only by the, the indirect path, the, the Trojan horse, uh, were they able to take the city? And it's only by the indirect path that the old men were able to persuade the young men to maybe not die so needlessly. That's fascinating because there is there is a component of like, is that indirect path, is that still masculine, right? In the way that we would talk about it today. Like yes. very clearly it is. They won the war, but it's like it's yes. subterfuge, right? Like that's mm-hmm. not masculine. I don't do that. Right. We associate masculinity with directness. And, and this, is, this is quite explicit. One of the, um, my favorite lines when I was you know, 1920 reading the Iliad was the line where um, Odysseus, of all people, is trying to persuade Achilles to come back to fight in book nine. And Achilles turns to him and says, basically, don't talk to me. Like More hateful to me than the gates of hell is the man who hides one thing away in his heart and utters another. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it captures exactly the heroic spirit of masculine language. What this is mm-hmm. how men are supposed to talk to each other directly out and out. And that's how Achilles speaks every time. <laughs> and mm-hmm. um, it's uh, there is something, there is something noble about that. There's something attractive about that. Um, but you know, the, this brings you back to the challenge of language too, which is not just, not just will the words have the effect that you desire in like, will will the person do what I want them to do, but will they even understand me? You know, mm-hmm. and the direct speech is egocentric in the sense that I'm going to express myself in the words that I think are right, regardless of what those words might mean to the other person. And much misunderstanding and um confusion comes out of that you know and and it's the the same knowledge that permits odysseus to speak directly when he wants to to you know to shoot so straight he can shoot through axes metaphorically speaking Mm -hmm. is also what permits him to hide and most of Odysseus's deceptions and lies are not manipulations in the sense of getting people to do things that he wants them to do. They're mm-hmm. attempts to hide himself away. Um, it's a trickster. He, yes, but he's not. But he's not caught. At least in the Odyssey, there are other apocryphal stories of Odysseus causing trouble. But in the Odyssey itself, he's for the most part not causing strife. Not nearly mm-hmm. to the degree that the direct men, Agamemnon and Achilles are. He is mm-hmm. actually the conciliatory guy mm-hmm. for the most part. Mm-hmm. All of his deceptions and, and indirect speech are ways to keep himself out of the limelight so as not to suffer the fate of the direct men. Concealment. Right. He calls himself Otis, meaning no man, to Polyphemus. Mm-hmm. when he asks, who is your name? And so when they poke his eye out, he says, no man has done this. And it's all very funny. Um, but there's even a passage in the Iliad, the, the night raid chapter, I want to say chapter 10, where um, 
Diomedes and Odysseus go out, and Diomedes is asked to choose the best of the Achaeans to go out with him. And Diomedes turns to Odysseus and says, well, Odysseus is clearly the best. And Odysseus says, basically, don't speak lies. Don't, don't talk to me that way. We, we, everyone here knows I'm not the best, but I'll, I'll, I'll go with you anyways. But uh, it, it, always trying to shun the, the spotlight, shun the Kleos in many ways that the heroes were so you know, drawn to like moths to a light. I re- I'm, I'm really enjoying this because um, in this whole masculine space, which we co-inhabit, there does seem to be quite a lot of celebration of Achilles and his directness and his warrior glory and that whole and all thing through the, through the people that are familiar with literature and the classics. And I don't see a lot of discussion of Odysseus really at all. And the yeah. picture that you're painting is like, maybe there's a lot more that men have to learn from this man about who we actually I don't want to say who we actually are because who's to say, but right. that is a more rounded portrayal. Yeah, exactly. That's more a more well-rounded portrayal, many-sided of, mm-hmm. of who men are that we could actually maybe draw more from than the sing, the single-minded, thematic, iconic warrior. Like maybe there's a lot for us to look into there. Yeah. I, I would, I would tend to agree. Um, my go-to model of, of masculinity, I think this is increasingly the universal model is Jack Donovan's, you know, I knew you were going to say strength, courage, Shout out to Jack oh, they're Donovan. So, they're so, they're so, they're so direct. They're so straightforward yes. as it were. DK is the Greek word that direct, which also means just interestingly. Mm. Um, and, uh, but part of mastery is, um, part of mastery is being able to do things that other people don't understand. I, was it John? Arthur C. Clarke, who said that you know, sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Yeah, people people don't like you know indirect or artful speech because it's um, you know you you feel like you're being manipulated, and sometimes you are. You know, yeah, it, it's a it's hard to understand, it's hard to comprehend, and it's um, and people do use it for evil. I have no, no question about it. Yeah. But, um, but to go the other way and say, well, sometimes this is used for bad. Therefore it's unmanly to do it is, um, you know, Mm. that's an attitude that can lead to pacifism and to all kinds of other troubles. Aristotle in rhetoric famously said that, uh, you know, some people say that rhetoric is to be avoided because, you know, people use it to mislead, but, you know, that is a, that a virtue can be used for poor ends can be said of all virtues aside from virtue itself. So it can be said of strength, a strong person can bully someone else, but that doesn't mean strength is evil. Mm -hmm. And it's, you know, I have in the last several years come to, to question the value of philosophy. Like why, why is this worth doing? Especially after reading Mishma, um, <laughs> right. It's very yes. easy to, to, to see the, the dangers of becoming too much of a person of the word and not enough of a person of the sun and steel. One might say, mm-hmm. and, um, you know, one of the great values though, of studying that is you're a little bit better able to see it. You're a little bit able to, to identify bullshit. 
And mm-hmm. while many men might say, well, it's not very manly to speak so indirectly. I think it is every bit as unmanly to be, I won't say unmanly. I would, I would say it's not particularly manly to be easily used, to be, to call back to a previous comment, to be the sort of person who is easy to spin off, wind up and push in a direction that you did not choose. Mm-hmm. And yes. um, there isn't much of a distinction between knowing how to speak in this indirect way, the, having the mental connection to speak well, and also recognizing when you're being manipulated or wound up in that direction, which is mm-hmm. particularly important in today's uh, media age, shall we say. Mm-hmm. I'm, I find myself wondering if I had had this thought later and we've kind of, we've kind of come back to it. If a lot of the value, and I think it's pretty self-evidently true now that I'm about to articulate it, but if a lot of these values that, that uh, we seem to espouse today in this masculine space are in fact, they're, they're reactionary in the sense of like men are celebrating Achilles and wanting glory because we have no room for glory in our lives. And in that pursuit, we lose sight of the larger picture. And in the same way, men react to the notion of, um, say, subtlety of speech as being unmanly because we are surrounded by such propaganda, such such venomous propaganda all the time. That's like, mm-hmm. no, just speak to me directly. And that's why that's why reading the tactical virtues is so powerful every time the first man reads it, is it cuts to the quick about what it means to man and 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 doesn't always will in this really refreshing way that we never that most men don't ever don't ever get. And and at the same time, glory and directness aren't the end of the story. And and, yeah. and where do we turn for those models of like here's how you here's how these are tools to use in a, in a complete man's arsenal, but don't don't just don't don't uh, discount the value of of the other ones. Yeah, well the the argument I make this is sort of a tangent, but I think it's related. The real value of direct speech, and I think that the subconscious desire why thumatic young men want direct speech is that. If you want to be immortalized in language, you have to have direct speech. Yeah. No one's going to remember the the metaphorical character who might be a stand-in for something in this indirect, beautiful story about something else. You know, that's that's no longer even about you. You know, what mm-hmm. what would it mean to be immortalized in that way? You know, direct speech is the path to immortality through speech. And so it's existentially Love necessary um, if you are a hero. But if your goal is not to be immortalized in poetry, if your goal is not to, to die on the battlefield so the songs of glory can be sung about you, if you are in fact fleeing from that as from sirens or mm-hmm. you know, cyclops, um, there's, nothing, there's nothing wrong with indirect speech in that way. In fact, that might be a better tool. It might be a stronger tool, a more masterful tool to reconnect with home, to reconnect with your honor group, mm-hmm. Um, mm. if that is your goal. Um, yes, I want to. I want to throw a big bud in there. Sure, but I think I think what 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 this uh, what sort of comes up in me around this is having worked in the corporate world, and everything in the corporate world is indirect speech. The whole, yeah, yeah, okay. 
circle back, touch yeah. base. It's all passive aggressive, indirect speech. Yes. That has that has no actual violence to it, but is actually it's actually dialectically violent. Like we're gonna circle back on that. And th- th- when you say that to somebody, you're not actually saying like, oh, we're gonna come back to it later. Like, because that would be direct speech. You're actually saying, I'm dismissing everything that you have to say and we'll just, it's not important and we'll just deal, it's secondary and you're secondary. And so, yeah. so like separate, the big but is in the corporate environment, it's all indirect speech and you're actually it's penalized speech, for direct yeah. speech. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. It's, it's, it's corrosive. It's destructive. You have to deprogram it. So, but other than that, yes, because <laughs> I think in some circumstances, really, like, you know, I, had, I, I spent a lot of time like, why was I miserable in the corporate environment? Because I spent so long learning to write and learning to communicate directly and clear thinking is clear writing, et cetera. But you go into the corporate world that is not appreciated at all in the workplace environment. So like right. how to pull that out of myself. So yes, in, in personal endeavors, in direct, indirect speech can be very useful and we'll just, ta- we'll just let the corporate world kind of burn over there with its own problems. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the value of direct speech is most profound among friends and family, you know, kith and kin, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And even Odysseus speaks plainly eventually with his son and his father and his wife. It takes a while to feel everything out, make sure the the context is right to to come out in the open like that. But um, the mm-hmm. the hero for the hero, direct speech is more of an absolute value. And I, I see people, for example, on, on social media who will say, like, um, don't say, let's go, Brandon. Just just be direct and say, F Joe Biden. You know, why, why be <laughs> right. why why beat around the bush and play to this language game? And like, on the one hand, fair enough. But when you when you the hero who wants to speak directly to everyone and cares more about his life in story than in his continued life on this earth. In fact, his continued existence and story is contingent on him dying. You know, um, mm-hmm. there's no, there's no danger in your enemies understanding you directly. So you mm-hmm. might die. Okay. I'm still going to speak directly. I'm still going to be straightforward. Mm-hmm. Um, because I'm a young unattached man who has nothing to live for here. I have no family. I have no, no grandfather to lift out of his mith- misery. I have no mm. son mm. to teach how to be a hero. I have no wife to come home to and, you know, remind her of the effort I put into constructing our, you know, marital bed or, or anything uh, like that. They have no attachments in this world. And so the prospect mm-hmm. of death and the risks associated with direct speech are uh, of no real consequence. They would rather die as uh, heroic men then uh, do what they have to do to actually be that man. Mm-hmm. And what Odysseus does is he has the ability to be direct, but when it comes to adversaries, to Cyclops who might want to eat him, you know, he could have been direct and said, I'm Odysseus and uh, <laughs> you're not going to eat us. Right. But instead he, you know, treated him as the enemy that he was what mm. what is what is manly or or you know advantageous I, I shouldn't say that because there is a kind of manliness in in that heroism and i don't want to take away from that but i would not say it's unmanly to you know to hold back on and and to not be forthright with enemies 
Mm-hmm. You know, there's no. What's the advantage other than some naive, youthful idea of being immortalized in song? To, you know, like a like a misguided Bond villain explaining all of your plans to the person who wants to stop you. Yeah, you know. it's it's self it's self defeating, right? Yeah. It's and, and this and, is. But that is exactly how the Bronze Age warriors talk to each other. They would, they would, you know, meet on the battlefield and said, I'm going to, you know, stab your spleen and steal your wife. And the other one says, not if I, you know, cut off your head and steal your daughters first. I'm exaggerating slightly, but they they challenge each other in this way. And, um, it was a, there was a funny, um, a funny tangent where I believe it was Malcolm Gladwell was talking about uh, David and Goliath. Goliath was of course a Mycenaean warrior, a Greek bronze age warrior of that era. And he would come out in the front of the battle lines and challenge all the Israelites in exactly this language. And the Israelites were not so much afraid of him per se, although he was described as pretty intimidating as much as, like just confused. Like what do we do with this strange guy coming out here personally challenging us in this way? And then of course, David comes out and says, I'm not fighting for myself, but for God. And of course the Mycenaeans are like, what are you talking about? Like, this isn't about that. Um, as a a completely different frame. Um, and I wouldn't say that David is less manly than Goliath for that. Um, Though I wouldn't, I wouldn't want to detract from the manliness of Goliath either. This kind of makes everything into this. I can see now, having been exposed to this, and in, in the way that you see it, and, and getting the chance to talk talk it through, just how low resolution some of our discussions about masculinity can become in in this reactionary kind of spirit. Like we live in this fallen and decaying empire of nothing. Shout out Jack Donovan again. And so you know, it's it's hard, uh, well deserved. And you know it's it's hard living in this context and and not to want to choose a way of being that is 180 degrees diametrically Diametric opposed to that. Opposite. Just yeah, just out of just out of instinct and to say the empire of nothing has absolutely nothing valid to teach, you know, because it employs all these techniques that are actually quite effective, um, and we right. don't want to have anything to do with that. But it seems like you know it, as long as we can do it very carefully, we can actually extract the things that are very useful. You know, like one of the things I, oh, sorry, one of the things just real quick that I, that I talk about is the empire of nothing has very limited, at least how it's manifesting right now, has very limited actual physical force, right? Yes. All the force is exerted through social shaming and, and pressure, right? There's no jackbooted thugs. It's all like proclamations and you're killing grandma and, 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 and stuff like that. And that's just shame. And right. so one of the things, and, and, but men don't fight with shame. We fight with bullets yeah. and swords. It's a very, it's a very, very feminine. So we as men have to get better at shaming. We have to use that weapon, like turn it right back around. Like, oh, you're a conspiracy theorist. Oh, well, you know yeah. what? You're a coward. Well, and, and, and you that don't can be have very to, and and you don't have to fully, you, you don't have to fully buy into your enemy's frame in order to, you know, accept some of the truth behind what the enemy is saying. Uh, Nietzsche famously yes. argued that, you know, you have to choose your enemies carefully because you eventually become what you fight. And, yeah. um, you know, you, that's one of the reasons I stopped even thinking about Antifa, you know, four or five years ago. Um, right. Is, you, you don't, at some level, spiritual level, you don't want to even become like that. But, right. um, you know, that you're right that, much of the modern discourse is about shaming 
and men are right to not be shamed for the things that they um, are accused of very often. But yes. conversely, there would be something wrong with a man who had no sense of shame. Yeah, shamelessness is a word yeah. that we don't say anywhere, and it's a real thing. Right. And, and uh, you know, they're just called psychopaths. Uh, <laughs> we don't. Uh, In some sense, yeah. Yeah. And um, I, I think that's true of language, too. And it, your, your comments reminded me of um, The Lord of the Rings, which has come back into the news in the last few months. And Unfortunately. Have, well, they've come back into the news in, in the context of the hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of identical responses which say the exact same thing, which is a quote from the source that evil cannot create anything new. It can only corrupt and destroy what good is created and of course so perfect the you know you would never look at something that has been corrupted like the lord of the rings and say well now we have to reject the original because that's that that's what the the other side does mm -hmm. and i think that has to be our our attitude with um with language as well uh, unfortunately uh the political left has has almost via postmodernism almost claimed language itself as its own domain yes, yes. um which is uh, of course nonsensical the 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 foundations for our language and for our means of emotional and cultural connections are in these hero cult stories that are you know from times past there's an inherently conservative nature to that and uh, the way we connect with each other is at least in part by connecting to these shared stories that we have together. Um, and uh, while, you know, no one should be emulating to necessarily become exactly like Achilles, um, not least because of Achilles' own advice on the matter, um, that, you know, familiarizing yourself with the, these old stories and learning the language of the stories, the, 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 morally thick language that they talk about is um and here honestly one of the best people who's who's begun talking about thick language again is um a british uh commentator named carl benjamin perhaps some of your viewers will know him mm -hmm. um mm -hmm. sargon yeah. of akkad uh yeah. <laughs> another heroic reference just in the just in his old pseudonym right um he doesn't look yeah. the part but you know <laughs> Well, he's come around. He's he's been posting videos of pull-ups and and the oh, works. Wow. Yeah, good for him. Um, he, he you you wouldn't recognize him from four years ago. I'll say that. Oh, well, great. Okay, awesome. I've heard similar stories about political commentators, but uh, other ones. Please continue. Yeah. Well, I don't know how much longer I can I can go here. I've got to get up at uh, at four thirty tomorrow. So. No problem. Just just one more question then, because sure. I've certainly been um, inspired by everything we've talked about with regard to the Greek classics, and I can imagine that you know many of my many of my listeners and watchers have as well. What advice would you give to someone who's like, okay, I'm ready to pick up the Iliad and, Iliad and the Odyssey, and really ready to engage with it? What would you tell What would you tell this person to do to begin giving a, a perspective that matches yours? A perspective that matches mine or, or an experience let's say a, a rich like where would i go okay i'm ready to read which translation do yeah. i read what other resources should i how can i how can i have an experience of the Iliad like the one that you're describing and the odyssey for that matter oh man well the 
the single best book I could recommend if, if reading is your way of understanding as it was with mine is um, I mentioned why Homer matters before, but the, the absolute best book, and I think it's accessible enough to most of your viewers is called the ancient Greek hero in 24 hours by Greg Nagy. Um available online for free. You can, you can find it on the center for Hellenic studies. Um, wow. It's, absolutely phenomenal but it's um i don't know i think i think the best way of of giving people my take would be to read you know homer's iliad and odyssey in the context of understanding wittgenstein that might sound like a kind of a, a random tangent but uh wittgenstein wrote two books we're gonna be here till 4 30 here we go yeah sorry i'll, I'll make it short oh, no, Wittgen- no please no v- wittgenstein ahead. wrote two books um a very pretentiously titled uh, like philosophical tractatus some, something really pretentious in his younger years where he believed he had solved all of the problems of philosophy and it was about language and he said, language is about painting pictures with words. And if you can paint pictures with words in another person's head, you can communicate. If you can communicate with language, literally all of our problems in philosophy are solved. And um, he wrote that. And it was, a, it was considered a magnum opus. It was a, it was a very well-known, very respected work. Um, and just as Homer's first work, the Iliad, was quite well-known and well-respected. But then Homer came back 20 years later and wrote a different book. And Wittgenstein comes around 20 years after his first book and writes a second book. And Wittgenstein's second book basically, in summary, argued maybe language isn't just painting pictures. Maybe language is actually a wide variety of different games that we play with each other. There are many different language games. And not games in the sense of like tricks or whatever, but but games yeah. in the Piagetian sense of there's tag and there's this. I can I can tell you a, a bullshit story that's literally just trying to pass the time and entertain. Comedy is a different language game than history, which is a lift different language game than formal debate. Mm-hmm. And all and you can't understand language outside of the context of these different language games, which is a sort of, which is sort of rediscovering the the language philosophy of Inos that Homer came to with the the circular, indirect, you know, passage of the Odyssey. Mm-hmm. And um, go ahead, please. So, so I would say if you read, if you read um, Homer's Iliad and Odyssey in in the context of Wittgenstein and thinking about the the importance of the language itself of the poems themselves as the most important part of the poem you know marshall McLuhan famously said that the medium is the message i would say that's mm-hmm. eminently true of homer's works and you're not going to get the same thing out of watching troy as you would out of reading <laughs> these things you know right um right and i did i, I do appreciate you saying that because you know, you talked about the current the left corrupting all language and the left is in Lord of the Rings, especially is corrupting all of our myths. And we have to reach back deeper into the past to find those that are almost uncorruptible in their complexity, but we have to experience them for what they are. Well, and it won't stop them from trying the, there's a Ca- Caroline Alexander, Catherine Alexander. There's some, there's some 
Greek scholar out there trying to say that Achilles and Patrocles were gay lovers. And it's that, old, that's uh, an old thing. Yeah. The song of Achilles. Yes. And uh, Circe is the more recent one. It's a sort of a feminist spin on the, the Odyssey, but they of course miss, they of course miss the, the thrust of these things for the same reason that Karl Popper misses the thrust of the Republic. And if you mm-hmm. establish that mental connection with the source material, you'll be able to see through their indirect language, which passes itself off as direct language, naturally. Um, wow. And it's very easy to fall for if you're not mm-hmm. if you're not familiar with this, if you don't have that mental connection established. Um, but it's there for the harvesting and enjoyment, and that that's I think the the main reason to study the classics, whether that's the Iliad and the Odyssey, or the Bible, or the Republic, or the Bhagavad Gita, or or any of these ancient works of of epic scale and skill in telling Mm. is just the sheer enjoyment of them. You know, when you compare it to the, to the quick paced, you know, dopamine hits and then back into the deepening depression of meaninglessness of modern entertainment, um, the sheer bottomless depths of these great works is such a, such a more satisfying and nourishing use of time and mm-hmm. attention and of the short time that we have to appreciate things on this world. Amen. That's beautiful. Thank you. I really, I mean, mission accomplished because you just painted the picture for me that I, that I wanted to see. So I, I really, I appreciate that. And I'm going to get oh, a copy of the Iliad now, really for sure. And, and, and I'll recommend your book, uh, the hero and the man along with that to help add some, add some context to everything that you just said, which I think is vitally important. Thank you so so much. uh, Thank you. So where can men go to find out more about you and what you do? Um, For the low res stuff, they can go to my blog, uh, caffeine and philosophy, um, which is just uh, where I play around with ideas. I edit even lower resolution on Instagram. uh, Also caffeine and philosophy, but um, my books are, are where I've put out what I hope are the better developed ones. So In Defense of Hatred, it was the, the first foray into that letter to Onways, playing around with concepts of identity and uh, is an individual the, the core you know, being or, or are we better understood as a, as a transgenerational lineage of which we are only a part? Um, Holy Nihilism is my... Uh, attempted um you know challenge to christianity and that was a that was a fun one and a a challenging one and the hero and the man is is more of a labor of love um mostly because there's so much to love about um homer and there's a there's a special place in there for christians too where i argue that um not achilles but actually jesus is the ultimate uh greek cult hero in history um just an extra an extra little um bit there which i i hope christians can take some some pleasure in i do i had the same thought while we were talking and i just i appreciate the directness of your writing i'm reading holy nihilism right now i'm really enjoying it so especially the skill in your writing yeah thank you very much um well this has been fantastic cb i really appreciate it and uh, thanks for all your time this evening oh absolutely thanks so much for having me I really appreciate it.
Thanks for listening to this episode of the Renaissance of Men podcast. Visit us on the web at renofmen.com or on your favorite social media platform at Ren of Men. This is the Renaissance of Men. You are the Renaissance.